0: hey there freedom fighters my name is andrew warner i am the founder of mixergy home of the ambitious upstart and this this is my thousandth interview you know on august 4th 2008 i posted a video up on mixergy where i looked up into the webcam on my computer and i said i failed And I said that I was going to shut down my invitation business and start doing interviews with entrepreneurs and people in general who I admire so I can learn from them and take back what I've learned from them to build a more successful company in the future. And I said that along the way, you'd get to watch and learn as I learned directly from my heroes. And we did it. A thousand interviews later, here I am today bringing back some of the most memorable and most influential interviewees people who helped me both on camera here with you and off i invited them on to a google hangout to talk to uh, talk about the old days to ask them some new questions and to do short interviews with them all for you that's what this is all about my goal when i started out was to build a successful company i think mixer g is that company but I wanted to be even more successful. My goal is I started to talk in interviews afterwards, evolved into saying that I would like someone who's watching these interviews to learn from them, to use what they learned, and then build a successful company so they can come back here and do an interview themselves. Basically, I consider this a circle of like the circle of life on Mixergy. You learn, you do, you come back, and you share with others so that they could learn from you. And I'm so proud at how many people have done that. And I'm hoping that you, the person who's listening right now, will help to complete that circle sometime soon. We're going to start this whole program off with my interview with Seth Godin, the person who started here with the very first video interview on Mixergy. Let's get right into it. Seth is the best-selling author of 17 books. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. You might be familiar with his books Lynchpin Tribes The Dip and Purple Cow. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth is the founder of Squidoo, a site for creating single web pages on your interests and recommendations. Seth, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm not sure where here is, but somewhere
0: in cyberspace, I guess. Um, somewhere in cyberspace. This is on MixerGeese where Seth you were my first. Oh, I know that I part.
1: I know that part. Oh,
0: okay, um, you don't know like what tool we're using.
1: No, I know that part too. What I meant is, I'm in New York, you're not. And the, ah. concept, the concept of here becomes really amorphous, because how can you be in it? It's like a Star Trek transporter thing. What would happen if the beam split somehow, and the data went to two different places? You'd have two Kirks and two Spocks. There's no the sense of here disappears. So that's how I was getting metaphysical on you. Of course I know um, where I am.
0: Well, thank you for doing this. Seth, you know what? I have a list of questions that I was gonna ask you but I first have to acknowledge my heart was pounding before you got on here my heart is still just trying to settle in I've done a thousand of these I'm still nervous I thought at some point the inner resistance the lizard brain would quiet down can we ever conquer that part of us that creates this insecurity that keeps me from focusing on my questions and has me just focused on my inner inner demons
1: well Uh, Steve and I disagree with this about the resistance, but I don't think it can be conquered. I think that trying to conquer it is the problem. That trying to make the fear and the lizard brain go away is what distracts us and takes all of our time and energy. And in fact, you can befriend it. You can welcome it back. You can say, oh, I'm getting that tingling in my toes and that little pain in my stomach. It means I must be doing something worthwhile. And so I look forward to that feeling. Uh, It's a good way to remember that you're alive, but it's also a good way to know that you're on track.
0: What brings that up for you? Do you have a specific example of something that brought out that inner resistance?
1: Um, You know, it changes over time. Uh, When I was starting out and I'd give a speech to five or ten people, I would be pretty on edge. Now I can give a speech to a thousand before it starts feeling like something's up. But if I have to, or if I choose to do a talk, where it's all brand new material, I still feel that. Uh, I think it's very common to feel it when we're afraid we're about to be judged. Uh, you, neither you nor I often has a situation where we are about to be physically threatened, where there's someone with a javelin or a spear uh, that's going to um, you know, uh, cut our entrails out. But it's the same feeling. We just simulate it in a different way. So, yeah, I feel it, and on a day when I don't feel it, I go looking for it.
0: Well, you go looking for it? How do Mm -hmm. you find it?
1: Well, it doesn't mind showing up if you give it the chance. And so the question is, can you go tell the truth to someone? Can you be vulnerable with someone? Can you uh, find a way to do something you've never done before? And we've created these uh, environments. So I see...
0: Yeah, no um, problem. Sorry, that is uh, Tim Ferriss coming on. I'm just going to lower his mic. He'll come on in a moment.
1: OK. Um, you know, and so we've created these work environments where we can hide from it, and I think that's a shame.
0: OK. So I, I see why. Well, so you're right. Instead of trying to hide Very that good. inner monster, I should be looking for ways to encourage it, to, or looking for no, things to bring that it out. Because if I, I do, do that, then it means one that I'm onto something that's really meaningful.
1: Yeah, like how many people have had the guts to do what you did and to stick with it for 1,000 episodes, that the people around you are naysayers and skeptics and you have done it anyway. Well, that makes you notable. That makes the work you're doing important because it's scarce because everyone else is afraid to do it. And the way we keep this up and to scale it and to make more of an impact is by finding that feeling again.
0: You know, I look back at the first email that I sent you inviting you to do an interview. It was in 2008 you actually said thank you but I'm too busy I can't do it and then I came back and I think I I sent you emails maybe uh, maybe three or four emails afterwards about other things and then finally asked you to do an interview and you finally said yes I would like more people to be interviewing their heroes the way I got to interview you how do we get entrepreneurs how do we get people who we admire to say yes the way that you said yes to me the way that Tim Ferriss will be on in a moment has said yes to doing an interview
1: Yeah, I don't think that that's a good plan. I'm sorry. I don't think Tim or I need a bigger platform. I think we need people like you to have a bigger platform. Uh, I didn't agree to come on five years ago because you were persistent. I rarely reward persistence because that just gets me more persistence. Hmm. I, I decided to come on because you were being generous and you were leading and you were being original and it's so, you know, this is the new guest blogging. The new guest blogging is Start something online and then try to interview uh, Andrew or Seth or Tim, because then you'll get some of their uh, attention. That's bogus. I mean, what we need are people who have something to say on their own, as opposed to people who just want to be Charlie Rose.
0: Ah, I see. Uh, One final question. I do want to to be more than just a person who interviews other people about their ideas. I would like to leave the kind of legacy through ideas that you have left, through ideas like the kind that many of the guests will have here have have created and left. How do you do that?
1: Well, don't you see you already have? That's my point. My point is that five years ago no one was doing what you are doing now. And now thousands of people are copying what you are doing now. Because you did something brave and generous that worked. I see. And Once a thousand people are doing it, you need to broaden the depth and, and width of what you are doing to touch more people, not with more of the same thing, but with stuff that makes them think more, that's riskier, that's scarier. And um, you know, I've watched uh, Tim build his career in just that way, and I've tried to do the same thing, which is to say, all right, that part gives me the right to do the next thing, but if the next thing is just the last thing, no one needs me anymore The goal of the next thing it has to be scarier than the last thing, or else we've wasted our platform.
0: All right. Thank you so much for coming on here and also for giving me that chance all those years ago you were the first video interview and at the time you could have said I don't know who this Andrew guy is, I don't know what he's getting into, could this be the next Wag? could this be someone setting me up but you took a shot on me and I really appreciate it and as a result I've been able to grow the video interviews and get so many other people who I admire on like you and like Tim and like many of the guests who will be on here. Thank you Seth.
1: It's a privilege. Take care and good luck for the next thousand.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Our next guest, I'll bring up his mic right now, our next guest is Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss is an entrepreneur, number one New York Times bestselling author, who is known for his rapid learning techniques. He is known for the book The 4-Hour Workweek, which so many of the thousand entrepreneurs who I've interviewed here have said has changed their lives and set them on the entrepreneurial path. Of course, Tim's other books include 4-Hour Body and The 4-Hour Chef. Tim, thank you so much for coming on here.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And congrats. Thousands a big number.
0: It really is. You know, I started out by telling Seth Godin that my heart was pounding, and I really didn't expect it. I feel like this should be old hat for me right now, but I still feel a little insecure at times. I still feel like I don't have it. I told you via email when I invited you on here, you look like Mr. Confidence to me. You never seem to break a sweat. Is there anything that makes you shake your confidence?
2: Oh, Absolutely. I think that uh, as one example, for instance, before I do any type of public speaking, I still feel like I'm going to vomit, and I pace like a caged animal before every speaking engagement. Mm. Uh, But I feel like I would have to worry more if I weren't nervous before events like that. And it made me feel better to know that even Dean Martin used to vomit before every performance. Mike Tyson felt very similarly. And I think that... Uh, we can delve into confidence, but I think that, as Custom Otto, Tyson's trainer, would say, it's it's not that the hero and the coward feel different. They feel the same way. It's, it's how they respond to that feeling that makes them different. Uh, so I, I, I have self-doubt. I have uh, crises of meaning all the time. Uh, and I think it's, it's important for people who only see the highlight reel. Like maybe they only watch some of my presentations or they see you know, the Tim Ferriss highlight reel to realize that you know, it, it is a roller coaster and th- there are those ups and downs and that's just part of the ride that you sign up for in a lot of ways.
0: One of the things you taught me was at South by Southwest in Austin, I had a, a live interview session and you were on there and I, I was shaky there. And I asked you, what do you do when you screw up? And you said, I look at what what happened and I try to create a process for avoiding it in the future so that I don't make the same mistake and if it ever comes up again I know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example of a time where you just lost it, where you said I can't regain, I can't make this work and as a result maybe you had to sit back afterwards and figure out what not to do again?
2: Oh, all the time. I I mean even this past year uh, 2013 was very difficult for me because I decided to take a break from writing books so that identity of author kind of went away or I didn't associate with. And I experimented with television, and uh, you know, they've, all the episodes of the Tim Ferriss experiment are coming out at the end of May on iTunes, sort of house of cards style. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if I want to continue doing TV, so I thought that was going to be my new identity, and that's kind of gone, uh, maybe. And uh, simultaneously, as much as I enjoy angel investing and, and being involved with startups like Uber and Evernote and Twitter and whatever, I don't want to be a full-time VC. So I had this this crisis uh this existential dilemma uh that really shook me pretty hard to my core and I think that when that happens to me my first default and I think a lot of this comes from competitive athletics a long time ago it, um, athletics were mandatory every season at the high school I went to is that uh, the easiest way for me to work on my inner game when I start getting monkey mind is to work on my, my outer game, if that makes sense. So like g- embrace motion, go to the, go for a long hike, go to the gym, have some type of metric, whether that's, uh, s- stroke count in the pool, whether that's time in the mile, whether that's pounds in the deadlift so that you you don't have your entire identity vested in one thing and maybe you've experienced this. A lot of startup founders have their entire identity vested in the success of the startup and there are things outside of your control that can that can affect that and and cause it to fail temporarily. Uh, Interviews, same story, you can have a stretch of a couple of bad interviews, it might not be your fault and uh, by diversifying your identity say with one athletic component, uh, one sort of intellectual component and one professional component, every week can still be a win, and you can gain that sort of positive momentum to do more things. Uh, but when I get trapped inside, I go outside. Uh, that's that's usually the, the, quickest, the quickest fix for me.
0: You know what? I remember you telling me that when you came out with the 4-Hour Body, and... It reminded me of the, the importance in my life of running. When I go for long runs, I feel like I can conquer something on my own without having to depend on an audience to like it or a, or an interviewee to be a part of it, or a sponsor to to bless it with cash. But what I found is, over the last week, I think I ran maybe half as much as usual, maybe half maybe three out of seven days, maybe four out of seven days, and I, I find that I minimize the importance of it when work comes into play because I prioritize work. Isn't that the better way to do things? To, if, thing, if life, if work isn't working out, to focus more on that and then to take away from the running or swimming or the external, benef- the external activities?
2: Well, I think it, it depends on how you're looking at your schedule. So you can look at your schedule as a finite pie of discrete elements and you mm-hmm. have to allocate one that is separate from another but in my experience at least the easiest way to address say, depression the is diet as well as exercise. Uh, there's, there's a very interesting book called Spark about this entire this exact topic and the best way to improve cognitive performance is to improve physical performance because of course the brain is an organ like any other. So I find that the most important time to exercise is when you feel like you have no time to exercise hmm. and I remember something that Russell Simmons said uh, to me once which was uh, if you don't have time to meditate for 30 minutes you need to meditate for three hours <laughs> and uh, okay. I think that that, t- that sense of time scarcity I- is often an indicator of exactly what we should make time for easier said than done but this is something you constantly have to practice it's a habit Uh, and I think that uh, it's not as though you make the decision once and you're done. It's like, oh, okay, I understand what a good diet looks like. Now I don't have to ever think about diet again. That's not how it works. But when you develop a habit and say uh, consume 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up for two weeks, that will become your new default. And once you have that default, you don't have to allocate any bandwidth to it. It just becomes like brushing your teeth.
0: I see that makes sense. I'm uh, looking at the list of people who are going to be coming on later today. Jessica Livingston, if all goes well with the tech- with the technology, Jessica Livingston from Y Combinator will be here. Drew Halston of uh, of Dropbox is going to be coming on here. Um, I want I'm wondering from you, how do you learn from these extraordinary entrepreneurs? I want to try to bring back some of your way of breaking down with they with what successful people do I want to bring that to my interviews so that I can pull out ideas from my audience that they can use the way that you might
2: yeah I I have a set of questions that I tend to ask uh, and uh, they include you know what what is the biggest mistake that novices make the biggest waste of times Mm -hmm. uh, waste of time that you see entrepreneurs making in, in the beginning. Uh, or it doesn't have to be entrepreneurs, but novices in any field could be bobsledding, could be anything. Um, secondly, if you were to start over again, what would you do? What would you do differently? Uh, if you had to choose one or two people to emulate, who would they be and why? Uh, if you had, say, four to eight weeks to train me for fill-in-the-blank, huge audacious goal, raising $10 million in funding building a $100 million company, whatever it might be, uh, how would you prepare me? I understand it's impossible, but if you had you know, $10 million of your own money on the line, how would you train me if you had to? Uh, and there, there's a set of questions like that, many of which seem absurd, uh, like the you know, how would you train someone for an ultramarathon in eight weeks type of question, uh, that turn out to be possible if you force someone uh, to answer the question. They have no option but to try to make that work. And um, that, that's generally how I approach it. And uh, if you had to choose, say, two or three resources, whether that be a book, a series of lectures, a blog to help someone self-study for X, fill in the blank, you know, soccer, language learning, whatever it might be, what would they be and why? Uh, if you had $500 to spend on X, product development, customer testing, uh, whatever, learning the, the Van Dam splits, you know, what would you spend <laughs> it on, and why? Uh, and it's, it's really just a template of questions, um, and they were that, they're listed in the, the meta section of the 4-Hour Chef, but I really tend to stick with those questions as a starting point, as, it, as you know, oftentimes a single answer will then lead to four or five refining questions. But uh, those are the type of questions that I ask, and I also look at who they surround themselves with. I look at their peer group and I know Drew and I have, have said something similar in the past which is you're the average of the five people you associate with most. So I find it very fascinating to see how, those, how people like Drew curate their inner circle. You know, who do they allow to make them uh, or, or to, to, to create them in fact um, and, I, and I find that endlessly fascinating.
0: Speaking of the people they surround themselves with, in our first interview you gave me great advice. You said that when you try to meet someone, you don't go directly to them. You look around and you see who's with that person who everyone else is trying to get to talk to. I'll go get to know that person and through them I might build a connection with the the big shot. That's helped me so much in doing interviews. Um, I think even Drew Housen, who we're talking about, I got to know through a friend of his, Jessica Ma, who introduced me to him as opposed to just going directly to him. Mm -hmm. I wonder, when you come up with ideas like this, how do you document them and remember them? These ideas come to me. I recognize that I should be going to someone else and asking for uh, an introduction. I write them down, maybe in an Evernote or in a Google Doc, and then I forget to go back and use them. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
0: How do you keep yeah, track of this? It's
2: this a consistent issue. I mean, I have, this is this is one of, you know, 50 notebooks that I have, and I also mm-hmm. use Evernote and so on. Uh, I will calendar them and set reminders. Uh, so uh, typically when I start my day and I have a morning ritual, because I think that it's important to have ritual and routine to keep mm-hmm. away fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So in terms of maintaining confidence, I think a big part of that is conserving your... Decision making only for the things that matter. Like you shouldn't have to wake up and decide. Spend ten minutes figuring out what to have for breakfast. That's a waste of your bandwidth. Uh, Where I was going with that is, I'll, I'll make a list of sort of three things that I'm grateful for. What I want to be, sort of the characteristics I want to have that day. Uh, you know, this day will be great or exceptional if I do the following three things. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day, I'll do another uh, three items of like, amazing things that happened that day. And it might sound cheesy and new-agey or whatever. I find it extremely, number one, therapeutic, and number two, uh, calming and uh, efficient, very effective. So for all those reasons, uh, I really like to scope it out and just write down two or three things. And very often, if it's one of those high-level things that is a force multiplier, like I want to... Uh, completely, let's say, launch a podcast with something that I'm thinking of doing. And I will have that travel from one day to the next until I do it. And I only have three slots. So eventually, (laughs) I will get that done, especially if I can keep email and things like that away for the the first two to three hours of the day.
0: Would you you be able to stay on with me for about five more minutes? It looks like Jessica Livingston's having some trouble getting on. Yeah, that's
2: fine. No problem.
0: Henry yeah, also- email Jessica and see if she make sure she has the link and see if she has any trouble and just in case we have several guests coming on i imagine that someone's computer is going to fry up someone's going to have some kind of issue would you ask my wife if she would get on the guest list to participate and she'll be like our backup that way if things don't work out with the guest we'll have Olivia come on here and she and i can talk about the old days when we had a uh, when I couldn't figure this out, where I was really trying to make it work, and we'll see what it was like from her perspective. Um, You know, when I was first dating Tim, I used to wait. I said, when I succeed, when I really make it, is when I will will find someone to be with because that's when I'll earn the right to be with her. Mm -hmm. And then I realized how silly it was when I heard Richard Branson talk about, or uh, read a book about Richard Branson and how he... And the woman he was dating at the time used to walk around and fantasize about being able to buy a house and about how they were looking forward to that moment in greatness. And I realized, you know what, I should find someone even before Mixergy makes it and let her see me as I struggle. Let's work on it together and make it big. That kind of, that kind of um, bonding is priceless. I feel like there are some people who knew you when you were just getting started. Do you remember some of them who, who knew Tim when when Tim wasn't, Tim Ferriss, when Tim was trying to make it, trying to figure it out? Yeah, tons of them. I mean, I'm,
2: I'm friends with like, almost all of them still to this day, so that that could go back to 2007 when I was just kind of scrapping along and trying to get to South by Southwest and begging and pleading with Hugh Forrest at South by South Interactive to give me one slot if somebody dropped out. Um, or it could go all the way back to college friends and friends from high school. And I still have a, you know, an annual reunion of a lot of my closest friends wow. from my childhood and high school and college uh, in the summers. And I just had dinner with a college friend last week. So the, I, it's important for me to keep in touch with those people for a lot of reasons, but certainly uh, also to not believe the hype, if that makes sense. I mean, I think that you're never as good or as bad as people say you are. And it's good to have friends around. Uh, And I do have some newer friends who are also really good at this who will call you on your bullshit. And uh, I think that to your point, though, you know, finding uh, a companion before you make it, so to speak, uh, Mm -hmm. I I think can be extremely critical uh, for long-term relationship success. And, I mean, I I was (laughs) – I've been told – before that, you know, a woman's loyalty is tested when her man has nothing, and a man's loyalty is tested when he has everything. Uh, and uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So congratulations. Uh, I, uh, I am I'm envious of you.
0: I actually remember talking to a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Holiday. He said, no, Tim Ferriss used to talk to uh, Tucker, Max, bef- and Ryan before they, uh, before he made it, and you'd ask all these great questions, and they wanted to help you out thinking, you know what, we're gonna help this guy get started. And I always wondered, what was it that you said that made them wanna help you out?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I'd say number one, I did my homework. So I, I knew that Tucker, for instance, had done some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I had background and was, current, was then training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So mm-hmm. I viewed that as a way to differentiate myself, especially at a place like South by Southwest Interactive. Uh, secondly, I didn't try to impress. I didn't try to impress him. I said, "Look, this is totally out of left field. You have no idea who I am, but I know you've done A, B, C, D, and E. You know, I'd love to buy you a drink and just ask you three or four questions. I'm not going to like pick your brain for an hour. I know you don't want that, but I have a couple of really specific questions. You know, in exchange, maybe I can do blah. You know, but gave them an easy out. I think is another thing. And uh, you know, I was I was uh, really." Uh, identifying with what Seth said about rarely rewarding persistence because then you're just asking for more of that sort of slamming a head against the wall behavior, even if you say no. Uh, But uh, you you tend to get more bites with a softer sell. So I always give them an easy way out. I'm like, hey, look, if you don't have time, it's no problem at all. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this is one of three sessions I wanted to come to. I'm happy to, you know, maybe I can help you with this, this, and this. I've literally two or three questions and you better have those two or three questions because they may just say like hey look I don't have time to go get coffee or a beer but like shoot ask me your three questions and that can be really valuable so that that was the general approach
0: well thank you thank you for doing this and also really over the years as I built up Mixergy you both given me advice on how to get guests and how to connect with people Um, and also you've introduced me to people and you've helped me out with big milestone events for me including that live one that I talked to you about Tim Ferriss, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. bet. Our next guest is Jessica Livingston. She is the co-founder of the Seed Accelerator Y Combinator and the author of Founders at Work, a collection of interviews with entrepreneurs about how they built their companies. Jessica has been an inspiration to me. Jessica, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrew. Let me bring up your audio just a little bit louder so we can hear you there we go thank you
4: it's great to be here
0: I remember living in LA reading your book with people who've gone on to build incredible companies since then uh, including Otis Chandler of Goodreads uh, John Bischke of Ventolo and it was so inspiring to see how other entrepreneurs built their companies and I thought if I could do that then I could learn from them and then go build something were you able to to learn from the entrepreneurs um, that you interviewed at Founders at Work and used some of it to build uh, the com- to help the companies at Y Combinator?
4: Oh my gosh, absolutely. I'm still learning to this day by the way. Whenever someone comes to speak at Y Combinator who's an expert on what they do, mm-hmm. I have my notepad out taking notes. So absolutely from the people I interviewed at Founders at Work, I learned a lot about you know, trends that happen, Fundraising problems, you know, everything um, that I certainly then use to um, advise the startups we fund. Yeah. How
0: do you how do you organize it all and keep track of it all? I mean, I've now gone through nine hundred ninety nine interviews. This is my thousandth, mm-hmm. and I feel like. As I went back to look at the older interviews like the one I did with you, with Mike McDermott of Books and others, I said, oh yeah, I learned so much from those, from those interviews. Why did I forget it? How do you get to keep track of everything you're learning so you can actually use it?
4: Oh gosh, it's all <laughs> swirling around in my head. If you were to quiz me on specific interviews, I might not come up with anything good. But it... You know, it's, it's more like how often are you talking about these things? How often are you using the information? I'm sure subconsciously you're using some things that you've learned from past interviews, whether it's just a technique on how to draw information out of someone better. Um, you just have to keep working with the, the stuff you've learned. and. I kind of write down things that surprise me and I talk about them with Paul or with other founders I say hey can you believe Mm -hmm. that he said that that was really interesting
0: Uh, Paul Graham of Y Combinator was one of my early interviewees and I remember Mm -hmm. asking him how do you help entrepreneurs discover their ideas when they themselves can't figure out what their big idea should be and he said that it was a gift that he was worried it would go away and when you heard him say that, you laughed because you said it's never going away. The interesting thing is that as far as I could tell, it, it hasn't. The companies that Y Combinator is helping to launch are just getting better and better. But it's, it's now no longer Paul and the small team that started that are helping these entrepreneurs come up with their ideas. How do you systemize the process of helping entrepreneurs figure out what their big ideas should be so that they can go and take off?
4: Hmm. Well, it's hard to systemize the process of having ideas except for like we, we have office hours with the startups and we, mm-hmm. we force them almost to say, you know, is your idea working? What results have you gotten? Because it's very easy for founders to kind of be in denial. They think they're married to an idea and they might not think, well, gosh, this isn't something that people seem to want. So we, we the process we use is a lot of office hours and a lot of really smart uh, partners at Y Combinator saying, you know, is this working? Have you thought of this? Um, what have you done here? And, and sort of forcing, I, pulling ideas out from them, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm and just by asking is this working you're forcing them to confront the big question that they might not pay attention to because they're so into the idea that they've come up with
4: I think so you you don't you wouldn't believe how married founders get to their idea and it's easy to go into denial on you know whether people actually use it because like that's the proof right if, if no one is is coming back to your site then there's something wrong and you need to adjust it slightly or change entirely.
0: One of the things that I did since our first interview was I I got pre-interviewers to come in and help me and I showed them the process that I go through to uncover stories and to tell a story through an interview and that's really helped me grow beyond the few people who I was able to pre-interview an interview you guys have grown so much at Y Combinator do you have systems like that that allow you to grow beyond where you were when it was just a small team
4: oh gosh we have lots of systems in place we have a lot of software Mm -hmm. that helps us share information and keep track of things so that we're not Saying the same thing over or or, or doing the same thing, um, we keep track of when, when I do an office hours with a group, I'll put my notes in the system so that the next partner who meets with a startup can view my notes. We didn't used to have that; it used to be all in our heads. Um, what other systems we've we, we we let's see we we've written a lot. Of stuff that we share with the new batches, because again, we're a lot of times we're giving the same advice over and over about how to do things, or this is what you should expect. And so, by by writing it all and sharing it, uh, that saves us a lot of time too.
0: Paul Graham's taking a step back from from Y Combinator. He's not moderating and developing on Hacker News. He's got mm-hmm. uh, Sam now leading Y Combinator are you going to be taking a step back too?
4: No I'm not nope uh, a lot of people ask me that even though my name was not in the announcement as taking a step <laughs> back but no I'm, I'm just as engaged as I've always been and in fact uh, with Sam on board doing a lot of the administrative things that I used to do I'm excited to do more outreach and a lot more work with the alumni and especially more work with the startups.
0: Um, I want, I'm going to have Drew Houston come on from Dropbox, I'm trying yeah. to formulate the right question to really get in his head and understand why Drew made it when all these companies seem to be attacking him, when every week on his own community site on Hack News people are saying, well, look out for Dropbox. That means that they're going to go away or that they're going to lose, they're going to have to reduce their prices to a point where it doesn't make, I don't know what all these worries are. He doesn't seem to have it. What question can I ask him to really understand what makes Drew, Drew?
4: Boy, that is that is a very good stump. That is a good question. What would I ask him?
0: <sighs> well, why do you what do you think makes him so successful? What do you think makes him the guy who can withstand so much? I don't want to say competition, but so many other people getting into a similar space.
4: Well, I mean, as if you're going to be a successful founder and, and have a company as successful as Dropbox, you, you're, of course, got to be ready for competition, and you, I, think, I think the sort of defining characteristic is that you have to have focus, and you have to have focus on your product and your users, and if you get distracted and pulled in different directions because you're responding to naysayers or dealing with competition, your product's going to suffer. Um, so I think one thing that makes Drew Drew is that he has always just been bound to this like idea, and he's just like devoted to his users and making it better and better. And now you know he's running a pretty big company, um, and he has a great team there, and they're still focused on the product.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to find out about his focus in the interview with him. You I know what I'm going young- to do.
4: You know what I'm going to do, Andrew. I'm going to I'm going to think about this, and I'm going to email you before your interview with him a question. I would love it. Okay.
0: Um, I want to before you go, just say thank you one more time. I've thanked you privately. I want to thank you publicly, not just for the help that you've given me here at Mixergy, but frankly, you, Paul Graham, the Y Combinator community, the Hacker News community. I remember when I first posted these interviews, and people went on Hacker News and said, "Is this guy for real?" Or is this? I don't know what. And Paul Graham wrote a comment I forget the exact comment but it was basically give this guy a chance and as a result the community gave me a chance and my early burst of traffic came from you guys and I never (laughs) forgot that and every time I wanted to get to the jerky kinda questions the gotcha questions I thought "No, I'm here to serve this community that helped me get started if I focus on that the interviews will get better and I'll draw more people like Jessica to me and they'll respect it and And it's been so worthwhile. Thank you so much, Jessica.
4: Oh, Andrew, thank you so much. And congratulations on congratulations on a thousand interviews and hanging in there and just delivering such amazing information to the startup world.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks, Jessica. All right, bye. Bye. Our next guest is someone who actually has been more open than me, more open than maybe all my other guests combined. His name is James Altucher. James is a successful entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, successful entrepreneur, chess master, um, investor, and writer. And started, sorry. Uh, books. Oh, that is Mike McDermott, who we'll be bringing oh. on in a moment.
5: <coughs>
6: oh, hey, Mike. <laughs>
0: there he is. I'm going to bring on James here first. James, welcome to Mixergy, Thanks for doing this.
6: Andrew, thanks for having me on for such an auspicious occasion. You know. Last time you were
0: on, we weren't even sure if the openness that you were about to bring to the interview we should, we should allow. I th- you were going to say how – not only that you wanted to kill yourself, but the method that you were going to use to do it. And I think that when I'm open uh, – Let's get right into it, Andrew. Sorry?
6: Let's get right into
0: it. Let's why get not? right into it. So do you ever regret this stuff? Do you ever go, why am I saying this stuff? I don't need to say this.
6: No, I never regret I never regret anything and that was the hardest thing to learn was to not regret things because if you spend, you have only so much energy per day, so if you spend that energy hanging out in the past, regretting or hanging out in the future, you don't have that energy for right now. For this moment, I'm here with you. I, don't have, I wouldn't have any energy if I was busy regretting or wondering, am I going to regret this later or whatever. Sorry about that, James. Oh, no problem.
0: All right, we're back. Good. I was a little worried there. So you were, you were saying that you focus on the moment.
6: Yeah, not. I mean, I don't consciously say to myself, oh, I need to be fully present right now. But, I, but so, so what I do is instead of focusing on the moment, I avoid the extremes. So I avoid too much regretting about the past or being anxious about the future. Two activities which are very easy to slip into. Can you hit play on that recording, make sure that we're recording it? Thanks, Anne-Marie.
0: I, I know what you mean, but James, I can't control it sometimes. I might say something really open about my insecurities on Mixergy, and then I go back home, and I fall asleep, and I think I'm good. And in the middle of the night, I wake up and I say, why did you say that damn full thing? Why did you say that you feel insecure? People want an interview, interviewer. People want to learn from someone who has it together, and you just keep bringing that down and tearing it apart. Why did you say it? Yeah, now, but you, what, what you're trying to, to do there – But the next day, I, I'm, I'm in, inhibited because of it.
6: Do you yeah, what, you, what, what you're trying to do is improve. Like you're, you're doing – th- you've done a 1,000 interviews. Now you're a master interviewer. You're putting in your, your 10,000 hours of, of yes. interviewing, and you're going to be the best in the world at this. So, of course, you're going to analyze what you've done. I, I do analyze my mistakes, but I do that so I can be better right now. Uh not so that I can say why did I do that be that's the danger you don't want to slip into the why did I do that you can say how can I be better right now when you feel yourself slipping into that and so that's a matter of practice
0: and how do you practice to be able to focus on what can I do better today
6: well it's a matter of constantly trying to I label uh what you're doing so am I if if I'm an entrepreneur if I spend too much time regretting uh, about something in the past. I'm not going to be able to close the sale I'm in right now. And that's happened to me. So you kind of, uh, with the gun to your head, literally, you kind of have to say, okay, I need to I need to not regret. I need to learn from this so that I don't make this mistake again. And I've had huge, huge mistakes that I've had to learn from or else, you know, everything would go up in flames and everything often did. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, one of the One of the things that you might notice if you were to go back and look at the thousand interviews is that there are these themes that keep coming up in the interviews. In my early days, my themes were about how do I get traffic. That's why I had Seth Godin on, and I said, Seth, you want me to build a tribe? I can't get two people to come watch my interviews. What do I do? And so he and others showed me how to build up a community. Mike McDermott, who's going to be on in a moment, uh, you can go back and see the theme there, which is, how do you charge for something online because I was doing all these interviews for free and it was costing me time, it was costing me money to hire an editor and I was just going nuts and I said let me bring Mike on and learn from him and it's been so helpful to to turn to people who I admire so much and get them to help me and then through it an audience of other people who wanted to learn, were able to learn from the interviews I'm doing this, I saw you started doing interviews and then I realized you stopped, I was hoping you'd follow in my footsteps I was hoping that I could at least like Help you do these interviews and, and help you become one of multiple people who are going to go out there and, and uh, learn from what I've done and build on it.
6: Why'd you stop? Oh no, I I've been I've been ongoing. I I, I have my podcast on iTunes and Stitcher mm-hmm. and a couple other places, and uh, it's been more or less ongoing, depending on where you where what platform you're using to to find them. Um. So I I just uh just this past Friday I had Dan Harris on. He um he's the anchor of uh, Nightline. And he okay. just wrote book 10% Happier. So, and then um, coming up, I have Austin Cleon, Ariana Huffington, a bunch of bunch of fun people. So, I'm Ari- learning How from you. you? To come on and do an interview with you, not text? Uh, yeah, an interview. Wow. So, uh, I had Wayne Dyer on. So, I have a mix of like from entrepreneurs to kind of, you know, people like Ariana or Wayne Dyer who sold 100 million copies of his... Yes. I see. So maybe
0: my, my podcast feed uh, for you isn't working, and I'm going to go and check it out. Do you do what I do? Do you say to yourself in the morning, what do I need to learn here today? How can I get better? And then if I'm going to interview these people, let's ask them questions to get some help from them.
6: I do. And you know what's interesting that you say that? So your creative outlet is this podcast, and for me, mostly, it's been writing. And, and you, And for me, I tend to write what I want to learn. So I write mm-hmm. a book, for instance, Choose Yourself. That's because, for me, I had to learn – very much how to avoid letting the system choose me, so I kept wanting to be chosen by clients or investors or publishers or acquirers or TV networks or whatever. I had to learn how to choose myself and so that's why I wrote it. And you know, you mentioned how when you wanted to learn something, it's not that you were having Seth Godin on to, just to have Seth Godin on, you actually wanted to learn, you personally wanted to learn it from him. Yep. And so it was your own interest and things you wanted to learn that drove your creativity, which I think is the most valuable kind. I
0: see I always feel like a fraud if I'm going to write a book on something as a way of learning but I guess through the process of writing you learn it.
6: Yeah, there's no other way to write actually. It's cuz then you're bringing up you're you're bringing up the snake from inside and bringing it out and you know taming it. You know so it's it's very it's very important actually that you're personally involved with the material that you're writing else it's too distant and people can't relate and you can't compete. So when I'm open in my writing it's because I needed to learn how to be more open instead of behind a disguise. So too often, when you're an entrepreneur, you're always thinking, "Well, what do I need to look like, or what do I need to, what mask or disguise do I need to wear to sell this client or this investor?" And it, being open is often the key to, to success. Being honest, being open, avoiding you know any kind of dishonesty.
0: Yep you know what I have found that too with the interviews that if I go back and look at the interviews where I was being open about what I needed what I was trying to learn those are the ones that are most useful like the one that uh, I did with Mike McDermott and I'm looking forward to having him on here but before I do let me just say thank you to you James one of the reasons why I wanted to have you back on here is not just because you were one of a thousand guests but because you're one of the most meaningful guests because you got so open because you are so genuine and for an interviewer like me it's it's hard to get entrepreneurs to be open. It's hard to get them to not just give the PR speech and I always appreciated you as a guest because you went beyond that and got into yourself. Thank you so much. Well, for Well
6: thanks Andrew and congratulations on number 1,000 hopefully I'll be uh, in between 1,000 and 2,000 as well. I would love to have you back on thank you James. Thanks, enjoy.
0: Alright our next guest is Mike McDermott. Mike actually I'll give the formal introduction and then I want to add a little something. Mike McDermott is the co-founder of FreshBooks, let's bring him up on the screen, which offers simple time tracking and invoicing services. He was also Mixergy's first sponsor. Mike, welcome back. Let me get your audio, uh, let me pump it up a little bit more actually. Where, how do we do that? There we go. I've got a set of headphones
7: here if those work better. You'd no, like you're it? fine
0: without the, heads, okay, the headphones. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for coming Great. back on here.
7: Hey, my pleasure. Great to be in touch again.
0: I remember actually interviewing you and trying to figure out revenue and asking you about revenue and you said that you could think of yourself as a crayon, which basically mm-hmm. is fun and adds value, or you can think of yourself as an aspirin, which cures customers' pain. We at FreshBooks think of ourselves as a crayon. You do you still think of yourself that, excuse me as a, excuse me as an aspirin? As aspirin headaches.
7: Yeah. yeah, so like you know, Billing, basically doing your accounting as a small business owner is is a pain that comes around regularly, right? And you can take an aspirin and make that pain go away, then it comes back a month later. So we still think of ourselves as um, very much as aspirin and we just hope to help save people time and you know uh, make the pain go away. <laughs>
0: But the thing is though, that crayons are what people talk about most. People talk about about Instagram, they talk about the fun new app that allows them to share secrets so much more. Do you ever feel like, why not me? I have a real business, we're growing, we have real customers, why does no one seem to care about, about, about business companies, about aspirins?
7: Well, you know, it's funny, I, I guess I see this a little differently and I think this is why you know, I believe small business owners have been so misunderstood over the years is, Mm -hmm. you know, you go talk to a small business owner about something that saves them time, you know, on average, we're turning back like a half day a month to people through productivity. Mm-hmm. They will talk about this like it's a crayon, because I mean, productivity and time is the only thing you have. And, and so, yeah, it may not be the sexiest thing in the world, but I'll tell you, shipping your bills out every month to your clients and getting paid—that's, you know, that's 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 not all bad. And uh, if you can save time doing it, it's good. And so, we've had you know, good um, over the years. People you know have been more than happy. Word of mouth is still the biggest driver in the business. And, um, you, know, that's, you know, that's very exciting
0: to me. One of the things I asked you in the first interview was when you were, ha- when you were going through a rough patch, what did you do and-, and how did you keep going? And you said, well, when there wasn't revenue, when there wasn't profits that were going to keep me excited, it was the thank you notes that we got from people. It just meant so much to mm-hmm. you know that someone out there at least loved it enough to use it. You've, gone- you've grown so much since then. Have you had any low moments since then? What's the lowest? I see you nodding.
7: Oh, I mean sure, right? It's uh, you know, it's it's a little it's it's a little bit like if I if I'm not kind of running at the edge of things, um I'm actually I'm I'm, I'm not very happy anyway. So I don't mind being kind of on the edge. But
0: sometimes another person t- Seth Godin said the same thing. He says unless he feels that inside like resistance or the the lizard brain acting up, it means he's not doing anything worth doing. So what's an example of a time where it happened to you where you said maybe it's just not working here?
7: Um, well, I mean, it comes in all shapes and sizes. So sometimes it's like, you know, a, a low point can be you just take too much on mm-hmm. <laughs> and get yourself into trouble. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, so sorry, if you put a finer point on that question because I thought I was headed in one direction and it seemed to change. No, what
0: was the direction you were heading in?
7: Well, I, I'm just thinking of times where, you know, me personally, I feel like maybe I'm out of step and not, uh, you know, not necessarily up. You know, my best, or maybe I'm overwhelmed. I think the sky's going to fall because all the pieces are going to go, you know, sideways. I got myself into a place where, mm-hmm. you know, at one point, I was running around. We were a hundred people, and uh, I just had way too much, you know, sort of uh, involvement in many parts of the business. And so, you know, that's kind of a learning. It's like, oh my God, everything is dependent in one way or another on sort of crossing my desk, any kind of decision. And uh, you know, and that's not a good thing. So, how do you get yourself out of there? And God, how long is it going to take? Because now it was okay for a while, and now I'm completely overwhelmed. And the only path forward is to have more decisions happen. So, how do you manage yourself out of that place? And the answer is, you go and build a team. And and, uh, and uh, team. we had a great team with us, but it, you know, it's a different kind of team for, for you know that, that I needed at that point to take FreshBooks to the next stage.
0: Okay. Um. One of the things that we talk about in Mixergy interviews is how to get your first, your first revenue, your first sponsor, the first company that's going to believe in you enough to put in some money. You guys have become many people's first sponsor. How do you decide who to sponsor, who to who to invest your advertising dollars in?
7: Oh, I feel like I could be giving away some secret sauce here, Andrew. Oh, good. That's um, what makes but, our good. You know- interview. <laughs> I am, um, you know, I think part of it is, uh, you kind of know it when you see it, right? Like, I remember speaking with you, it was kind of a no brainer. Right? I believe in what you're doing. So there's a guy up here, we're based in Toronto, and there's a guy who, uh, and that's in Canada, and he started a podcast called Canada Land, a media guy, and we chose to sponsor his podcast when he's getting going because I bumped into him in other worlds, and I just wanted to see the project come to life. I believed in him and the community that he had sort of around him, mm-hmm. and I think these are some of the things. You know, like if you haven't necessarily done anything before there's no traction or momentum. You know, it's it's kind of hard, but if you have a you know really solid interaction, you can see the work ethic. I'll never forget yours. You're you know always hustling, still hustling, waking up every day. How can I make it better? And and those are the things you know I look for uh, personally, and and so do we. And you know th- those are those entrepreneurial characteristics that are gonna you know I don't know when it's gonna blow up. Or you know become really successful, but I know it's going to because you're not going to quit until it does. And so, um, yeah, those are some of the things we look for.
0: I remember that first ad that I did for you. I couldn't do it by myself because I still didn't feel comfortable selling. I didn't feel comfortable just speaking at the ca- to the camera by myself. I had my wife come on with me. I said, "Well, you just give me someone to interact with," and she came on. And <laughs> since then, I've obviously gotten more and more comfortable coming on camera and doing it. Um, mm-hmm.
7: I was going to say, ironically, that's almost one of the things to look for. I think people who are, you know, I think it's important to know your value, and I'd hate to think that you know you didn't feel as valuable as you know maybe you should have, or you know, I, that's not what you said. Don't no, it was. Wrong. It was Sorry.
0: more about just I, for years, had built my my previous company in quiet and hiding, just talking publicly was uncomfortable. Being the person who would just go on camera and speak to the camera was, was just such an artificial thing to do that I didn't feel right doing it and I brought Olivia on and at the time we did the, we did the ads together and I think that it made for a more interesting ad and as a result I got more comfortable and more comfortable and I really always appreciated you guys for just giving me the shot and saying, hey, you know what Andrew, do whatever you want. Let's see where it goes. We trust you enough that, yeah. that We trust you enough to bring your wife on, to bring whoever you want. Just go for it. No,
7: uh, we did, and we do. <laughs> well, thank you,
0: thank you so much for being the first sponsor. And I also, of course, use FreshBooks to build my own sponsors today. Uh, and you, I, I, I appreciate it because you know what? It's very um, tough to remember to send out an invoice every month. I just have you guys on recurring billing, and it goes out. And if someone forgets to pay, you guys will go and nag them. And I don't feel like I have to do it. You'll send an email saying, "Hey, remember, you owe Andrew some money." And I really appreciate you for doing for creating the software and also for being my first sponsor here on Mixergy. Thank you Mike.
7: Thank you Andrew. Very proud to have been part of the franchise you're building here. Congratulations on everything to date.
0: Thank you. Our next guest is a guy who's become a really good friend of mine. His name is Goggin Biani. Goggin is the co-founder of Udemy where, which is how I first connected with him. He uh, he is now working on a new startup called Sprig. Sprig delivers fresh dinners to your home. So many people here in San Francisco have told me about how that's the answer to getting food. And I appreciate you coming on here and doing this interview with me. Thanks, Goggin.
8: Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, really excited to be here and congratulations on uh, interview 1000.
0: Thank you. You know, one of the cool things about you was I remember a few years ago, before you even did the interview, putting a post up on the site saying if if Mixergy delivered any value to you would you please like give me a report card tell me what kind of value and how helpful it was and I remember seeing your comment in there and thinking "All right, this is not just some guy this is Goggin he's using Mixergy somehow and it meant so much to me like I was on the right track before we get into you as an entrepreneur you as just a listener of Mixergy what do you use that's so useful? Yeah so
8: uh, when I was starting out my career, one of the I think one of the amazing things right now about about starting a company is that there's this huge treasure trove of information on the internet that can help you answer a lot of basic questions. And so I used to, and I don't have as much time anymore to do this, but I used to basically spend every time I was eating food, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, watching videos online of like successful entrepreneurs talking about various. Challenges that they've had and what they did to build their business, and I would also spend some of that time reading reading online. Although that's generally now you know relegated to my smartphone. Uh, but yeah, so I would watch Mixergy interviews while while eating lunch um, to sort of be you know semi productive, but at the same time get uh, that sort of daily education. Um, and then if there's a specific company that I'm looking at or really think is exciting that I'm trying to do more research on, and they have a Mixergy interview, that I'll often you know, watch that
0: founder's interview as well. So then you went out and you you built Udemy and so many people have told me uh, that they don't think that college is gonna survive for a long time because of Udemy and similar sites but largely Udemy. Um, and I thought the guy made it. And then you went and you took essentially a job at Lyft. You talked openly here over Scotch about what you were going through at the time. Can you say, can you Tell my audience about that because we thought you were super rich. You had enough cash at that point to go and buy all the cars that you want and houses here in San Francisco.
8: Um, well, I would say that being being wealthy has never been part of the goal. It's just now come, um, and it's kind of a good. It is a good measuring stick, I will say. How much money you've raised or you know how much money you made is a good measuring stick. So I look at it that way, but I don't. I don't really care about it. Um, but uh, no, I mean I. I was hungry, I left Udemy, I took about six months off and I was hungry to get back in the game and yet at the same time I wasn't completely ready. I hadn't figured out exactly what type of leader I wanted to be at the next company and I had not an idea that I was super passionate about. So when I saw ride sharing, and I actually saw ride sharing as a user so I did not see it the way that some people did via TechCrunch and via all the buzz, I actually had no idea that these companies had raised any money when I first heard of them. I just um, looked at it and started using the products and loved it. And so I reached out to the founders and said, "Hey, will you like? Do you have a role that would fit for me?" So I reached out to both Sidecar and Lyft, and eventually I happened to once I realized that Lyft was owned by Zimride, I was like, "Oh, I know the guys at Zimride." And so John and Logan were kind enough to bring me on board to be a consultant there for six months.
4: Um, and while there,
8: I learned. And completely changed my views on marketing and customer acquisition, um, and building companies so much so that you know when we started Sprig, I think it has a completely different philosophy than
0: Udemy. What What did you learn about getting customers? Well, I
8: just learned the the second half of the coin of uh, customer acquisition. I mean, I think that I came into Lyft with a better understanding than than the Lyft team, other than the one person I was the one director of marketing there. But other than you know, comparing to everyone else. I feel like I had an amazing understanding of customer acquisition from a, from a brass knuckle perspective like paid acquisition, you know, email marketing, viral acquisition, all the sort of traditional growth hacking types of marketing but I had never thought about brand and I had never thought about product. And one of the things about like local marketing is you have this incredibly tight knit network of potential customers. I mean Lyft customers see each other every day and Sprig customers see each other every day and they eat dinner together and that's a huge marketing opportunity and so what we've done at Sprig is focus on brand and focus on building value and delivering that to the customers so that they love us and every additional thing that we do is actually driven by how much our customers will love us more than it is by like how much money it costs to do x thing and how much return we're going to get off of
0: it. What do you mean with Sprig? I tend to think of Sprig as something that I might use to buy food for myself at home if I want a healthy dinner? Maybe my wife and a couple of, actually, maybe even just me and my wife. How does it get to a couple of my friends? Do people buy dinner, have it delivered, and then share it with friends?
8: Um, yeah, so you mean how do your friends hear about it? Or how yeah. does the food, Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the most common ways to hear about it is, honestly, we've delivered an experience that I think most many people find to be quite magical. And by delivering that experience, they're just prone to share it with everyone. They're just like, oh my god, I had sprig last night and it was awesome. You know, talking about dinner or talking about your meals or what you're doing tonight for dinner is a common conversation to have. And so that's one thing. But then the second thing is, of course, dinner is a social experience. If I'm having two friends over and we're like hanging out and having drinks, maybe, maybe, you know, or having scotch at your place. Like maybe having a dinner, having food alongside it is a common occurrence, right? You order Chinese food together, or Thai food, or Postmates, or whatever. And Sprig has become viral in a lot of ways because of that.
0: You know, I'm I'm realizing that, passing a note to Anne Marie to check in on Noah, who is who is here and ready to come on for the next uh, interview, and then he disappeared for a moment. I want to make sure everything's okay with him. Um, you know, I was realizing Goggin that I was holding back. The last question was, that one of my earlier questions about where you were when you were working at Lyft, what I was trying to get at was you, you had shares in a successful company but you weren't cash rich at the time which I feel is an issue that many people around here have, right? Totally, yeah. That's, that's where you were and so how do, you, how do you get along? How do you feel when you're in an environment here where so many people seem to have made it and you know, Udemy hadn't sold out yet and your next thing hadn't even started?
8: Uh, I don't know that that ever bothered me, to be honest. It's kind of a weird question because it presumes some sort of like internal angst that I just never really had. I mean, to me, the angst was around like whether or not Udemy is going to get to to the the goals that I have for it, right? Mm-hmm. So I expected to do what you talked about, which is if it can prevent, if it can change the way that education works for millions of people. I think it's already provided an impact, but it hasn't. There's not a fundamental sea change yet where people are not going to college and starting to use Udemy or these types of tools yet. I think that's still at its in its nascency. And so if Udemy accomplishes that goal, that's where my angst is: is whether or not we accomplish that goal. I, I mean, I have friends who make millions of dollars a year off of their own businesses, and I have friends who've made, you know, uh, who make, you know, very little money. And that's not really that important to me. I think what's important to me is impact. And so, yeah. It, it doesn't really affect me very much.
0: I'm gonna have uh, Noah Kagan on here if everything works out. Oh good he is coming back up I see him on here. You know Noah as a great marketer if if there's one thing you could learn from him what would it be?
8: <laughs> I want to know how, how What? No, well I have a lot of questions for Noah usually but, but I would want to know uh, how he comes up with his more creative marketing ideas I mean the copy, the sort of creativity around the marketing is fascinating to me. I mean, how do you come up with things like sumo jerky? Like, <laughs> the fuck is that, really? Right? And 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 sort of the marketing copy that he comes up with on a daily basis, I'd be super interested in, them. in the. I'm not talking about the like tactics, right? I'm actually not interested in the tactics. I'm not interested in hey. I like you know what,
0: actually, Goggin, tell you what. Let me do a quick intro for him. I know we've got you for three more minutes. Let's bring him into this conversation, and then I'll, I'll do a one-on-one with Noah. But first, I'll, I'll introduce him. Noah Kagan is the chief sumo at AppSumo, a daily deal – excuse me, not a daily deal website anymore. It's a deal website. He also – actually, Noah, I don't even like this intro. Who wrote that? Here's what I got. Before that, he was a cubicle monkey at Intel, number 30 at Facebook, number 4 at Mint. But the company that now I know you for is the one that helps entrepreneurs start their businesses. What is that well, one called?
5: Well, AppSumo.com is the main thing, which is a free newsletter for helping entrepreneurs kick ass. Okay. All right. There you go. Let's bring,
0: uh, let's bring Goggin on real quick because I know I only have a couple of more minutes with him. Goggin. Well, Goggin's on. Noah's on too now. Yes. Goggin. Goggin. What was your question for Noah? I want to see if uh, if if I can have your perspective on this interview with him.
8: Yeah. So Noah, when you have a like specific creative challenge that you're trying to deal with, how do you get yourself in the zone or get yourself mentally prepared for like you know? Do you go on long walks? Do you like have a routine? Do you go drinking with your friends? Like, what's your routine to get yourself in the zone to come up with those sort of ideas? Where do they come from?
5: Yeah. Um, ecstasy, acid. <laughs> You gotta do a little Coke. I think Coke's big in San Francisco now, right? <laughs> like, uh, That's right here. One quick side thought I wanna, I wanna say to Andrew and I think a lot of the people who are watching, you know, AppSumo and Udemy used to work together really closely and then it was it got even a little competitive at some point point. and I started hating Goggin. Like I really hated this guy. <laughs> uh, the, the guy you guys are all watching, I don't know if it's on me but uh, I definitely hated him and, uh, and I had a chance to have a dinner with him I don't know, maybe about six months or a year ago And it really taught me a valuable lesson where, like, this valley is small, the Internet is, you know, surprisingly connected, and it's really, like, stupid to go judge people without really knowing them. And so I actually really respect them, and uh, it was interesting to listen to your story with, you know, when we were here and also with Andrew. So I would say you never know if you're going to work with someone again, so try not to be as much of an asshole as possible. (laughs) Um, You know, the thing with creativity, I wouldn't say – you know, I've always been jealous of people who are, like, painters or artists or photographers because I've never felt like I just like snap my camera, and I'm like, mm, that's someone pooping. But everyone else looks really great. I'd say my creativity—it comes at random times, and I try not to force it. So it could be like, it could be in the gym, it could be just walking around, it could be in a shower, masturbating. Um, I, I think. Let me give you a quick example. I think when you know it's there, it's there. So I we are doing a napper retreat, and I wanted to get gifts. And so I was like, oh, let's get wine bottles for everyone. And I have, a, and I go to my network, and I said, hey, guys, what do you think of wine bottles? And a guy who I trust and who's always been good feedback, Anton, who's on our team, said, hey, that's really lame. That's really boring of you. And I was like, yeah, wine bottles is really boring of me. Like, that's what normal people would do. And I was like, all right, let's, go, let's not force it. And I think when things come to you naturally and you're like, that's the moment, and I think there's a balance. You force it sometimes. You're like, I got to get this done. And other times it comes. And so I, I thought about it more, and I was watching um, – Outcast, you know that song, hey, ya. Yeah. You remember that song? Yep. Yeah. So I'm watching Outcast, hey, ya, and all of a sudden I realized we should buy everyone GoPros and everyone films each other during the week and at the end of the week we make this cool compilation video, right? So everyone walks home with a GoPro, we have a cool video to show, and that's a lot more interesting than just giving wine bottles. So it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I just didn't force it, and when I knew it was the right thing, I, I jumped on it.
0: Okay. Uh, Goggin, I know you've got to run. Thank you. I'm going to ask a follow up question based on what you've said earlier. Thanks for being a part of this.
8: Sounds good. Thanks. And I see a lot of friendly places. So thanks for doing this, Andrea. Yeah, i got a lot
0: of really good people coming up. Right. Bye. Bye. bye right, no, How did you come up with the idea for Sumo Jerky? The, the company that you came up with as an experiment to show that your ideas for validating business ideas and growing them actually do work. Um, how did you come up with that idea?
5: Um, So the original idea was like, hey, people all want to talk about starting businesses. Let me exactly show you how to do it. So with AppSumo, we emailed everyone and said, you guys can choose which business I'll start. And the three options were lemonade, salsa, and jerky. And, uh, you know, I could have been fine starting either three of those, but I think one of the things that I've really took to heart this past probably 18 months, especially since we started the monthly 1K course, is doing things that I enjoy. And so I eat jerky almost every day. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I have a, a lot of knowledge about. I know what the costs are. I know what the different brands are. And it's and I frankly think when you're you know a lot of people. I was talking to some uh, talking to this nail salon girl yesterday. I got a pedicure. You want to show us her your toes? Let's see. Yeah, I, can you see him? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. So I was getting a pedicure. It's really great to get pedicures. It makes me happy when I walk around. And uh, and she's a she's super fit. Really tight body. Uh, and I was like oh and she's like I'm like what do you really want to be doing because she's like I don't want to be here and she really wanted to be helping people get fit but she was really afraid to ask people and I think what I've realized is that when you're doing something like jerky which I love doing and I love eating and I love sharing it makes it much easier to succeed as a business and so the the takeaway that I recognize you're happy to email me and say Andrew I think you should
0: check out my new jerky I did email you and you did buy it and I jumped on it I love uh, not beef jerky fish jerky Uh, You were the only one who got custom jerky, too. (laughs) Thanks. Here's uh, something else I wanted to talk to you about. I apologized to you privately a few years ago. I want to apologize to you publicly, for bring this up publicly, and then ask you a follow-up question about it. I remember it was, we were both heading towards the bathroom in Washington, D.C., and I said, you know, Noah, when you did one of the first courses on Mixergy for AppSumo, I was upset after it was published. I said, it was just kind of an MVP, and we just threw anything out and I love my audience, and I should have created something better and anyway, at the time i was I was upset with you for pushing me to do it and then later on, in that the way to the bathroom, I apologized because I realized that that was a good start but I still want to talk to you about this thing, this idea of just launching anything, even if it's just on a GoDaddy website, and putting your credibility out there on the line, and it could potentially be ridiculous, it could potentially fail, and you don't, to, you don't want to give someone, you don't want to give your customer something ridiculous, you don't want to fail. How do you deal with that?
5: Um, I think two things. I, I, go to, I went to the gym last Wednesday with my trainer, Garrett, and he is such a dick. Like, every Wednesday, he just brings me as much pain as possible, and I was like, and so he made me do, like, a uh, hundred lunges,
0: mm-hmm.
5: and I was like, dude, I don't think I can do it, and he's like, yes, you can, and I think when you know that someone else can do it, so like, with you, with Mixergy, I knew that you could do it. It would be a little uncomfortable, but it would help you grow, and it help you accomplish it, so I think that's one part of it, uh, and the second thing is not everything works, right, and so I'll give you a very specific example, I'm, is that uh, I try to get people to buy custom art Poster uh, taco posters. Uh-huh. So I went out to my network. I only went out to probably about five people. I was like guys I know you love tacos. Will you buy my taco posters? I'm gonna get this guy named Will Bryant to design them and uh, No one bought it and you know, it's my friends these people are people that love me and they're like oh no You're stupid. Why would I want to buy that? So I don't really feel and I think when people say oh my friends and family are gonna be embarrassed It's like either you're offering the wrong thing or they're not your real friends and maybe get a better family mm-hmm. Um, but I know from my friends that they're always getting my back, at least the ones that really matter to me, and those are the ones that I'll try to count on. Uh, so when the taco posters didn't work, I actually went back to them, and I offered this, which is uh, taco t-shirts, and now it's actually getting manufactured. And so the point, though, is that when things don't work, it's, it's great when things don't work out. Uh, and I, I think about this all the time, like when I get a ticket, or when my food isn't the way I want it, or when someone's mean to me and hurts my feelings, I try to think about, all right, well, what can I learn for the next time? And that's really the main thing. Not that it fails, but the next time. So
0: but don't, post- you ever feel, don't you ever feel What's like, it? look, I'm starting to get this big reputation. People are respecting the work that I do. And if I create just uh, a jerky site on a quick GoDaddy domain, then they might not respect me anymore. They might not see me as one of the people who helped
5: create Facebook. Um, You know, it's really interesting. About a month ago, I was talking to Anton. Mm -hmm. Anton's the guy who writes a lot of the AppSumo emails. And I said, why do we give a shit to spend literally maybe two days to three days? Like, that's, I I don't know, that's probably in terms of cost, maybe $5,000 writing an email. One email. And why do we care? Like, me and him argue. Like, Mm -hmm. we're bros, and we bro it out on that stuff. But I was like, why do we care? And you know what it really is? Is that we do the things that represent the way we want to be and the way that we want to be portrayed. And that, that's what it really comes down to for each person. So it's not about being super ghetto and, and being hood or putting out things that embarrass me myself, but putting out things that I can, sit, I can stand behind and say, yo, if you don't like it, that's fine. Let me learn from it. But this is something that represents me, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Even if it's a little bit offbeat like toes that are blue
0: in a business interview.
5: Dude, toes that are blue make me so happy. I really think that everyone should go out and try to get, um, get a pedicure and then see how it feels.
0: Why does it make you happy? That and then also the Pac-Man on the side of your head that you once had shaved in, what is it about
5: that? Um, I have a, have a few thoughts also about other things. Um, okay. You know what it is, Andrew? It's, I, I think for myself, I don't know, maybe it's the youngest child syndrome where we want a little bit more attention. Um, but everyone goes out and gets a haircut. like, and, and I think about this in terms of business as well, is that if we're all doing the same exact things, how do you expect to stand out? And so I, I am single now. Um, and and it makes me think about it, as well as dating, as well as business and other things, is that if I just go get a haircut, you know, like my hair looks like shit, right? A lot of people look like shit. I've never, that's actually one of the things I'm self-conscious about is my hair. Fine, I'll leave it off. Um, and I have a haircut just like yours. Like you look this, like the same every other uh, bearded person in Yosemite or in Marin Valley. Uh, but the point being is that if you put some lines in your head, one, it kind of makes me happy, and two, it differentiates me. So when I go out and I have my, like, my nails painted, it's not that I'm super trying to peacock. One, it makes it funny. But I can't tell you how many people have come up, guys and girls, more, more girls, uh, and gay people, are like, dude, I love your nails. And so it, it kind of makes me think and recognize, and, and this is the one thing that someone taught me, no, if you ever wear clothing that gets attention, try to wear more of that type of clothing or whatever type of attention you want to be getting. Like, so if you go out and someone says, hey, I really like that jacket, then you should probably go and get more jackets. It's the same with marketing in a business. If you do an ad or a post or a guest post or whatever it is and it works, All right, now figure out what's working and go do more of that.
0: All right, you were saying that you actually came in prepared. You put down some notes. Um, I had a few things I just
5: wanted to share. I I don't know. I just was excited. Is that cool? Yeah, I appreciate that you put in that kind of work. Yeah, well, I think a few things. I just want to share two apps that I love that most people Mm -hmm. that I tell about have always been like, oh, that's neat. Glimpse, G l y m p s e. What's that? Oh, Glimpse is awesome. Whenever I'm driving somewhere or going somewhere, I, you send someone a glimpse and they can see where you are and when you're supposed to be there. Okay. So instead of you being like, I'll be there in 10 minutes, I just send them a glimpse and then they okay. know when I come. Okay. So I really enjoy, and I'm really enjoying MyFitnessPal. I've been using it for the past two weeks um, and I've really been getting into exercising overall. So I'd say MyFitnessPal has just been interesting to see, like it's made me much more aware of what I'm eating and what I'm putting into my body. Both are totally free. Um, And then the last thing I think that's interesting for your audience, and I've been just really thinking about in a lot of different aspects of my life, is how do you reverse engineer what's already working? What do you mean? So, So what that specifically means is that, like, I was looking at starting a podcast, so I spent maybe a good half day reverse engineering the top podcasts and the top podcasts within those podcasts. So, like, Andrew Warner, what are his top podcasts? How long are they? What are the topics? Who are the speakers? What are the comments that are, people are leaving? And figuring out, all right, how do I reverse engineer from what's already working and what people want to create something for myself? And this yeah. goes for dating, right? So maybe get a pedicure. Maybe it's not using the same online dating sites. Maybe it's asking for friends. In marketing, what blog posts always get to the top of Hacker News? Who, who are submitting those blog posts? So how do you build a to, to, to really figure out why, why those
0: posts are getting to the top of Hacker News. What do they have in common, and what can I do that's similar to that?
5: And I think that's what, what, what most people do wrong is they just kind of like go all over the fucking place and they don't really have any organization around it. And they actually took the time to think about it and say, all right, well, what already is working? Now let me see how I can re- recreate that and then add my own flair. Um,
0: you know what? You've always been really good about that. I've always seen you do that right down to with, uh, with Hacker News when... When uh, AppSumo was first getting going and you didn't have the time to keep rocking the top of Hacker News, you said, well, who's on there? Well, how do we get on their website? And then when people go to discover their top blog post, when people go from Hacker News to those blog
5: posts, they'll see us. I mean, that's the same thing we did with, well, I mean, two things, like sumome.com, it's the same thing. I'm seeing who's already, well, Sumome is our free marketing tool, and I'm seeing who's already getting their blogs featured there. I'm like, instead of me trying to go get Sumome featured, let me get the people who are already getting that attention. To and the second thing, what's that? to To get those people to use SumoMe, to install SumoMe.com, and the second thing is, like with with Hacker News, it's Y Combinator company. So instead of me trying to like force my way in there, I just went and got a lot of Y Combinator products on App Sumo. Uh, yeah, and I that did that, a- uh, I by interviewing Hacker, excuse me, by interviewing
0: Y Combinator alumni, I was able to get onto Hacker News a lot more often in the beginning. Hey, you see that Neil Patel is coming on next. Maybe we can continue this. What do you want
5: to learn from Neil about how he is how he markets I with Neil specifically I want to know how much money he's making through I want to because he put out this vague post about all the costs what's the actual revenue he's making from his digital product on his website on quicksprout on quicksprout okay um, secondly I want I was actually really curious about his content schedule and does he actually do all of his own writing because the way he out the amount of content he outputs it looks like there's got to be a ghostwriter or something so I'd love for him to Go about. How does he choose the topics, and does he actually do all the writing? What's your revenue with your digital product? Um, with the, with the monthly one K, the how to start a thousand dollar how to start a thousand dollar month business. Um, I don't really look at how much it makes. Honestly, the, I focus on two things. One, I focus does it help us break even. Our cost every month at AppSumo uh, as a business is around seventy thousand dollars. So I make sure that it helps us break even. And then I focus it. I'll show you. We have a, Chad, Chad's amazing. Uh, we have, a, you, I mean, you introduced me to Chad, my business partner. We have a thing that tracks, it, it texts us every day when we make a sale. So it shows, like, who they came from, how's our goal. Uh, and so I'm, we, we generally range between 5 and 20 sales a day. And so I target about 10 uh, to ensure that we break even each month. 10 new sales a day. Yes. Okay. So are you
0: under 100000 a month right now? Um, our absolute most business is above 100000 Wow. How do you feel, by the way, revealing that? And I'll go to Neil next. But did, does it feel okay to be saying that publicly here on G? or did I feel did does it feel like I pushed you to say something?
5: Man, I feel like that's every one of your interviews. You have to do that. You're like, not not this part, but you have to be like, hey, do you mind? No, I, I'm very. I share what I want to share. The thing that I'm sensitive about. You know why? Was- I'll tell you why.
0: Because so many people after an interview will email me afterwards and ask me to edit it. They'll say, can you please remove the fact that I just revealed the number? Can you please remove the fact that I just revealed that I had an argument with my co-founder? And I feel like sometimes the only way I could lock them in and make them feel okay is to have them go on the record. But in this case, I just wanted to touch in and see, "Did did you get pushed because we're friends?
5: No, not at all. I, I mean, I think the only thing that I'm cautious, I don't mind sharing AppSumo revenue and stuff, but I, I think it basically makes people think that it's worth more focused on just revenue and profit, which we don't optimize at all anymore. And then with the course specifically, the monthly1k.com, um, I'm very cautious about trying to make it seem like we're like, oh, I want to show you how much money we're making from showing people how to make money. Uh, I, I see. really yeah. don't want that that type of relationship. I want it to be like, look, people are buying it, kicking ass, and it, it's cool that people are joining in, joining that every day, making sure that's more around it.
0: All right. Well, Noah, thank you so much for for Dude, being you on ask, here. Andrew. Love you, man. All right, and all uh, and also really for everything that you've done in private throughout the years, from introducing me to guests, many of the top guests came through you to help me figure out whether the revenue model is. To sometimes just uh, just being a friend, who will go for a run and talk about about my relationship with my wife. Thanks, buddy. Awesome, brother. Thanks, Andrew. Cool. Our next guest is Neil Patel. Neil is the co-founder of the analytics company. KISS Metrics and of Crazy Egg. He's best known for his work on uh, mar- t- he's best known for teaching marketing on Quick Sprout. Actually, I don't You know what, Neil? Let me bring you on here. I'm not crazy about the way I'm introducing you right now. I was about to say you teach people online marketing on Quick Sprout, and that's a digital product. And where well, you also have a digital product uh, that Noah Kagan talked about. Welcome to the welcome to Mixergy.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, uh, so Noah asks a good question. Do you write your own content on Quicksprout?
9: So I do. I write. There's a caveat to it. Um, I publish three posts a week. Out of the three posts, two of them are blog posts, which I write myself. Uh, I do have an editor. I have terrible grammar in English, and without that, the post just people used to always complain. Like most of my comments used to be, "Hey, you spelled this wrong, or you did this wrong." And then I also have someone who takes my posts because I write in Word. I can't write in WordPress. I write in Word. I can take screenshots of images, and they'll, they'll put it up and make it look pretty, right? And they'll format it. So I don't have to do that, because that was taking me around 30 to
0: 45 minutes. But so you start that. from scratch, writing out your post, and then they edit?
9: I Okay, so the process goes is I write, I come up with a topic or reader wrote email saying, can you write on this topic? I'll write the post. After I write the post, someone goes, takes uh, my screenshots that I did, because most of my posts have screenshots. They'll, add, they'll go to Photolia, add in a generic image at the top, right? They'll go and format the content I wrote into WordPress, then the editor goes in at the end and corrects it all, because there's a lot of grammar and spelling errors, even though I write in Word. And then the third blog post a week is an infographic. The infographic, I have someone who works for me, I pay them five or six grand a month. They do the research, then they go find designers from Dribbble, we pay the designers, they create the infographic, I just add a quick intro paragraph and a conclusion and the editor edits it. But the infographic post literally takes me 20 minutes to post. The blog post takes me around like four hours to write each one.
0: I see. But the person who works with you only comes up with the topic and the research, and then you guys go out to Dribble and you find someone to turn it into a piece of art.
9: No, they do all of that too. So their job for the infographic is come up with the research, come up with the data, find the designs from Dribbble, hire them, coordinate with them, get it done, make sure it looks good and then I'll create the text for the infographic, right? So I'll introduce the infographic and I'll end it with the conclusion.
0: I see. And uh, the other question Noah asked was, what's the revenue from the Quick Sprout product?
9: You probably already know what I'm going to say there. <laughs> so the, I did a Facebook post talking about the expenses. The expenses actually include income. So it was negative, I think, 600 and something thousand bucks.
0: How much? Um,
9: uh, but yeah, like I'm investing a lot. There's a lot of software costs in there that aren't shown. We're releasing a pretty big software product on QuickSprout.
0: But, but you were saying yeah. six hundred thousand dollars in revenue from the QuickSprout product. Uh,
9: there's way more than that in revenue, but I'm negative in profit, so I'm losing money. I lost six hundred and something, or I don't know, whatever the number was. Right, it was above a half a million, under a million bucks. But that's you what lost I lost
0: more than half a million dollars on QuickSprout, the blog oh. with the with the course on marketing. That I lost, yes. Wow, I had no idea. Where does that go? Uh,
9: a lot of it's right now going to software
0: development. I see. Other, Oh, software development on Quick Sprout, the, the, the website analyzer tool.
9: So not the website analyzer tool. We're building the whole marketing suite. Think of like Adobe's digital marketing suite, but that for content marketing.
0: I see. Okay. So what kind of revenue are you doing?
9: Uh, revenue, I won't tell you. I don't think I've ever told you for any of the companies, but I'm doing more in revenue than, you know, if I lost thousand dollars and doing a substantial amount of on revenue. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things you told me when I asked you about creating Mixergy Premium was you said, Andrew, don't charge monthly. Just figure out how long people are going to stay and create one bulk price where people pay for it. Why did you advise that?
9: You'll typically increase your conversion rates. People, even if they say they don't mind paying monthly fees, they tend to hate it. They like the concept of, hey, here's a monthly price. Oh, by the way, here's a special one-time offer. For XRs, you can get unlimited access for forever. And you'll find that it converts a lot higher and you'll make way more cash. And your lifetime value per customer goes up as well.
0: But things seem to be different when it comes to software, right? That's correct, and
9: that's why I've been spending a lot of money on software, because software, you can actually do subscription services. Assuming people are using and getting value from it, they'll continue to pay every month. Digital goods, though, the ROI isn't there, As and even though people can get value from it, they don't feel that it's worth paying every single month. A great example is lynda.com. They're worth a lot of money, but I bet you, Linda churned a lot of revenue.
0: Because people cancel and then come back. That's correct. I see, cancel, I and they plan
9: back. to come back when they... not coming back. They're not even coming back. Like the, windows, the tree houses and all the digital goods, right? Like, It's hard. If someone's paying for a mixer, I bet you most of the users don't stay for a year if they're on a monthly option plan. Okay.
0: You still work at Kissmetrics? I do. You do? How much of your time do you spend on Kissmetrics?
9: metrics majority of my time actually goes to Kissmetrics. The blogging on Quick Sprout, this is why I'm willing to lose money is... It drives a lot of leads for the businesses, like Kissmetrics. How does that work? In which I'll get hit up from companies, like um, I just got hit up from 888.com, right, like the big gambling site. And they're like, hey, love your content, would love to talk to you about analytics, see if you can help. And some of these guys will throw down, like, a few hundred grand or a half a million bucks in analytics. So it more than makes up for any time I'm spending there, right? It's driving quite a bit of leads.
0: You know what, I'm about to have Drew Houston of Dropbox. I'm curious what you'd want to learn from him about how he built up Dropbox.
9: Sure, the number one thing I would like to learn from him is any results they've... So Dropbox has grown in many cases from the referral program, right? Tweet it out, get more storage space, etc. Mm-hmm. Is there something they've learned for the B2B market? Because a lot of theirs is consumers, right? Like people who don't own businesses. And the second thing I would like to learn know is, is there any specific A-B tests they've done in the past that have increased that referral percentage, right? Because if you look at Dropbox growth percentage from the referral program, it's much more superior percentage-wise than most referral programs. The B2B space is much more difficult because, right, if you do a tweet, there's a lot of consumers that will see it. But I'm curious, because I know they are trying to go after the business crowd as well, if they've figured out any tweaks to it or tests for the referral program that has helped with attracting more businesses
0: and more consumers. You know, um, by the way, does does June need to go on at 1240 or leave by 1240, Anne-Marie? on, but he's on right now. Okay, yeah, we'll bring him on in a moment. I want to ask you about one other thing, Neil. The one time that you went offline was by buying a, um, an event called Twist Up. Yeah. What happened with that?
9: Still have it. Didn't do as well as we would like. Uh, we had a great guy Running it from a, if you look at the pure numbers, right, when he was running it, profit financially was actually doing extremely well. And yeah, did what? It was doing extremely well from a financial perspective. And then when okay. he left, he struggled to find a replacement. It was hard to find other people could produce the same amount of profit that he was producing, right? Whether people liked him or not, he was producing profit for the investors. And we just stopped working in the LA market, right? Because none of us were from LA. Um, and then we started taking that money and then we started using it for software and selling plugins and stuff like that. And, and then it did over well overall, but it wasn't a conference business at the end. It was just a holding company that had cash and we used the cash to sell WordPress plugins.
0: I see. And did you make your money back on that? I remember you sitting at that first event after you bought it with your laptop, checking the revenues, making sure that this deal worked out for you guys. Did you make your money back? The
9: first event lost us money. Well, after the second and third event, we were more than profitable. Actually, after the second, we were more than profitable. Because we learned that sponsors should pay for the event, and we made sure every event we could do, we had more sponsors than the actual cost of the event.
0: Sponsorship, not ticket sales. That's correct. Ticket sales is what we would consider profit. And did it keep you from ever wanting to go offline again?
9: Uh, that actually made me never want to go another offline business. I hated it, because the amount of effort you had to put in versus how much you made, it just wasn't worth it.
0: I know the feeling. People always say you should go and create an offline conference. If Mixergy does well, the revenue is going to come from a conference. I used to do events. Events are a pain in the butt, versus online where you can A-B test things, where online you can figure out a way to adjust today and then carry it through tomorrow, and it's not just a one-time thing.
9: That's right, and then my expertise is traffic, right? So it's easy for me to do stuff online. I won't touch anything offline unless it's real estate. Other than that, you know, I'm staying away from it as far as possible.
0: Your big purchase was Hello Bar. What's what's another one that, that's done well for you, another uh, web app or software that's yeah. done All well?
9: Guys done well, we sold Uh We just purchased Stride, which is a CRM app. Uh, after we purchased it within two to three months, we've already tripled revenue.
0: On which one? On, on Strike?
9: Stride app. Thought, uh, CRM, kind of like rise or Salesforce. I
0: know that one, okay.
9: because we bought it for pennies on the dollar and 3x in revenue within you know a few months is always a good deal.
0: Wow, congratulations. Uh, Neil, thank you so much for doing this and also you were one of the first... Um, live guests. When I used to do G live on a stage in Santa Monica, you came out and you didn't just come out, you put on a great show, you always crack people up, and then afterwards you would hang out with the audience or with the other guests. I remember Otis Chandler saying, I, I was on the stage with Neil, I emailed him afterwards, just went out for lunch with me and he helped me think through my, my marketing and I always appreciated you doing that. Thank you.
9: Yeah, no problem at all. I met good people, like even Otis, right? I called Stanford, but same thing, like did Goodreads, I'm like, good person. It's not about how much money they have or not. It's like, there's a lot of smart people I met at Mixer G Live. Even if they didn't do anything in the past, great audience. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for all the support over the years, and yeah, it has been a great audience. My, my next guest is Drew Houston. He uh, is the founder, the co-founder of Dropbox, one of Y Combinator's big success stories. I'm talking just to give him a chance to get back up on mic. I saw that he was on mic and camera a moment ago. Uh, let's see if Drew is there. Drew, are you there? Is it working? Yeah, it is, but your camera is off. I think you have to hit the camera button right above. Yeah, I
10: hit it. Toggle it again. If it doesn't work, I'll refresh it.
0: Okay, I no second. problem. We'll make it work. Cool. While Drew's doing that, I want to say thank you to a few people who've helped grow Mixergy including Doug Kaufman. I asked Doug why he's a Mixergy Premium member, and Doug, thank you for subscribing and being such a big supporter of Mixergy. He said that he learned so, way too much to even be able to answer in a short box, and one of the most it's been one of the most consistently valuable business resources for him. Doug Kaufman, thanks so much for being a part of the Mixergy community and helping to grow it. Drew, how is uh, the camera this time?
10: Uh, good question. It seems to be... The oh, obvious it's work, and something's I happening. I don't see the video. Let me... I'll just quit Chrome and try again. One second.
0: Okay, cool. Olivia, are you around? We'll see if we can bring my wife up here in between guests. Here's another guest who's another MixerG premium member. I'm looking here at my computer. Uh, Rob Rawson, he also became one of my guests. I'm so proud when someone listens to MixerG, becomes a premium member, and then builds a successful company and comes back to teach others. Rob Rawson, thanks for being a premium member. Drew, welcome. Here we go. Hey. We're good to that. have you on here, man. Yeah.
10: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Uh, so Neil Patel asked you a couple of questions. Okay. previous guest. He said, can you ask if, if Drew and Dropbox learned anything about B2B sales and B2B conversions? What have you learned about that that you can share with us?
10: Well, um, so this has been kind of a big adventure for us over the last couple of years. Um, Certainly my hope was that we just make a product and it would just uh, sell itself and people would just swipe their credit card and it would all be good. Um, it's been a little more involved in that. Um, we have, um, among other things, we've built a sales force um, and had to do a lot, especially as Dropbox has become more pervasive, to get IT comfortable with it and so on. So, um, And I think the reason for that is it's it, when companies are putting all their crown jewels in Dropbox, uh, they are often adopting a service like this for the first time, so um, they want to know that if they ever have any issues that they can get on the phone, um, and they, they want to know if they have any issues that we will help keep their stuff secure, and so it's been a little bit more involved than I thought, and also some internal challenges around the culture, like. How do, you, how do you build a company that can address both consumers and the enterprise at the same time.
0: But when I signed up for for Dropbox, it was a friend I think who referred me to Dropbox because they wanted a few more megabytes, and so I joined. And then when I bought, I just put my credit card on, and now I've been a subscriber I think for two or yeah. three years. But you're saying that that's not the way it works with bigger companies. Do you call out to them, or do you wait for them to, to request a call? How are you getting big companies to sign up?
10: So, so step one is a story more like yours where, you know, someone who's just working in a department starts yep. to adopt the product and share it with their group and, and then it kind of mushrooms out from there. Uh, and then uh, often it will get the attention of IT who's like, well, okay, how, how do we you know, deploy this in a formal way and get some of the visibility and the control that we need. Um, and so usually the first adoption is, is organic and, and often it'll be clumps of people or individuals just buying pro accounts mm-hmm. um, for themselves, maybe using the corporate credit card. And then, uh, to answer your question about it, is it, do we call them or they call us, it's, it's a mix of both. So, smaller customers will often call us and then we'll, we'll often have companies that have hundreds or thousands of Dropbox users, um, they might just might not realize it yet. And so, um, those are the kind of folks that we'll call them and let them know that we have a business offering. And-
0: how do you know that there, that there are companies out there, how do you know which companies have thousands of users already on Dropbox that you should call out to?
10: Well, so there's, sometimes it's really easy to tell, because there'll be, you know, you'll have a bunch of users sharing a bunch of documents, uh, all on the same domain, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, just a random company, right? They'll pick Cisco. Cisco has a lot of users on Dropbox, yep. and then, um, you know, they'll either reach out to us, or we'll reach, out, we'll reach out to them saying, hey, you know, you have X users at Cisco.com, plus, you probably, if you're like other companies, you probably have a bunch of other people using it. Who uh, who have a bunch of Gmail or other webmail domains, and mm-hmm. so we give uh, admins tools to kind of consolidate that um, and 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 make that
0: manageable. How do you know who to call up at those big companies so that you can explain to them that their users are using Dropbox, what Dropbox is, and how they could connect uh, them all together if they had one unified account?
10: Well, that's something where um, you know often it will be the head of a department, we'll connect them with IT, or IT will reach out. I mean, I think. One thing that's changed in the last couple of years is is Dropbox has become so pervasive that we're on the radar. Um, We we never meant to fly under the radar, but now it's something where um, the category category is maturing Mm -hmm. such that um, Dropbox is well-known. IT, in many companies, it's the number one request that they get is to formally deploy
0: Dropbox. So you guys will call into the IT department, ask who's the right person to speak to, and then explain to them. How they can work with Dropbox in a more organized way.
2: Yeah, and we actually
10: do a lot of other outbound things. Like uh, mm-hmm. we started to do more brand advertising. So if you you know you're reading on Technology Review or on IT sites or different things, you'll you'll see uh, different uh, different uh, promotions for Dropbox for business.
0: I see. You know, actually, how many users do you guys have now?
10: The last number we published was 200 million.
0: 200 million. When did you publish that?
10: Probably late last year. We published that.
0: Wow, how many paying customers do you have?
10: That we don't break out, but that's been that's been growing a lot too over
0: the last over the last several years. So I asked Jessica Livingston, uh, partner at Y Combinator, one of the early. Um, Investors and believers in Drew, and also in Dropbox. I asked her, "What is it about Drew? What makes Drew Houston a success, and other people not? What makes?" She didn't know. She didn't even know how I could come up with. I mean, she couldn't identify one thing, and we couldn't come up with a question that will bring it out. So I'm just going to ask you straight up: Why? Why were you able to do it?
10: I think that's that's. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think. Dropbox happened to be an idea I was really excited about, and then um, I was really fortunate to team up with a good co-founder and, and move out to San Francisco and surround myself with um, great investors and, and hire great people. And um, and the, the, doing the sum of those things, like surrounding yourself with good people and getting an environment that can help you grow your company, it's sort of like moving into a faster lane of traffic. Um, and and I th- so I th- so I think th- those are the most important things, be it like setting up the environment. That kind of pulls great things out of you. Um,
0: what is it about your environment that helps pull such great things out of you? Well, I think it's
10: it, when you take money from a top-tier VC, they they that kind of sense. have a playbook of how to take a couple scruffy, you know, early 20-something engineers and help them help shepherd them uh, through building a big company. Uh, second is we got a lot of great angel investors and prior entrepreneurs who who have taught us a lot, and among other things. Um, some very foundational ideas that they had, uh, such as you know, really being obsessed with handpicking every person you bring into the company, those are now really deeply embedded in our cultural foundation, and, and that's kind of a, um, it's, so that sort of pay, continues to pay interest when, when you're able to be pointed in the right direction from the beginning, and then you know, honestly, a lot of things, uh, the stars have aligned for us in a pretty special way, so um, I started working on Dropbox just because I thought it was something that would be interesting for or it would be useful for myself, um, and I had an idea that a lot of other people would want it, but, but Arash, my co-founder, and I could never have predicted how quickly things like mobile would take on and, and how much bigger this problem would become for so many normal people and businesses, and so um, I think timing, you always hope that uh, or, or, uh, timing and, and, and luck, um, or at least things outside of our control, were, ended
0: up being on our side. If you were to start over, this is a question that Tim Ferriss helped me come up with earlier in the in the session here today. If you were to start over and, and look for a new idea, where would, where would you look? How would you come up with the next idea? I think
10: Dropbox for me started with a personal problem. And you think about a, a lot of companies sort of follow the passion of the founders or, 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 or scratch an itch that they personally have. Um, there's other ways to do it. Um, but that tends to be more focusing on a problem that you're that really bothers you, or that you're really excited about, mm-hmm. tends to be better than trying to do a market analysis or a more kind of you know traditional uh, kind of MBA approach. Um, nothing against MBAs, um, but uh, it ends up being that's where I would look. I look for what 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 seems broken, what 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 works a certain way today but will certainly not work that way in the future, and and where is technology broken? And and, and I I think about that all the time. And in in some ways, um, what I've paid a lot of attention to is is pick other problems I get excited about and kind of expand the scope of Dropbox to support dealing with those problems. So for example, email bothered me a lot of the same way uh, having to back up my computer or carrying out a thumb drive bothered me. And when we thought about Dropbox not as File stores, but is really simplifying how people use technology um, and saving people time and uh, and making things work better. Uh, email kind of falls under that umbrella, and we went out and bought a company called Mailbox, and and our interests as a company just keep increasing over time.
0: I kept waiting for more integration between between Mailbox and Dropbox. Yeah, will that would that be coming? For sure,
10: we've kind of left them. But they that team um, they there's a pretty obvious set of things that they need to tackle um, supporting more platforms, supporting more email providers um, because historically they've just supported iOS and in the beginning they just sort of G- supported yeah. Gmail. Mm.
0: Oh Drew, looks like we're losing your connection just as we're getting to the new stuff. Looks like you're coming back <laughs> up. Hey.
10: Um, I just got an ominous looking error message but looks like we're good.
0: Glad you came back, yeah.
10: So. Uh, We actually haven't changed their roadmap that much. Now that said, we have uh, started to add ties between your Dropbox and your mailbox, um, and things like attaching files. Um, But well, there's a ton more we can do there. I mean, this this is like a five ten year odyssey we're on to fix email. Let
0: me ask you about uh, one final question about our upcoming guest, Rob Walling. Rob runs. a company called Drip, which allows entrepreneurs to grow their mailing list and he also helps what he calls micro entrepreneurs build their businesses. I'm wondering there are a lot of great companies that are in that micro entrepreneur level, but they're not going to get to the billion and beyond level that you've gotten to. If you could give them advice about how to break through that and go from micro to macro to giant, what would you give them? What would your advice be um, well I
10: think the the first thing is the reason that companies, the the first reason that companies don't become billion dollar businesses for example um, is that they don't have billion dollar markets and so whenever, and this was true of my last company, right, I started an online SAT prep company and you know, our our audience is limited to you know, teenagers who have to study for the SAT, right, and you do it once you're not going to buy it again next year hopefully, Um, and so that put a cap, I mean it's, it's still a big market in aggregate but it's it, compared to something like Dropbox, it's pretty limited. And so the first really important choice is what kind of market do you go after? And and then in, in even if you're going after something smaller, is there a way to expand it, uh, expand what you do, um, or reframe what you do so that you can go after a bigger audience? Because even if you're going after a massive market, you still have to pick a first niche. Um, we sort of picked Windows file synchronization uh, as our first niche. Um when we were really trying aiming at this much bigger problem of like how do you have your stuff with you wherever you are and solve all these other problems. Um, the second is to surround yourself with people um, who have done this who have built businesses like that. and so by taking money from Sequoia, um, our first venture investor um, and others who have seen this kind of thing all the time, but unfortunately they don't have a bunch of magic fairy dust in back that just helps you like magically make your business big but they can tell you the kinds of things that, that other founders paid attention to or, or things that they had, to, challenges they had to overcome and sort of give you lift the fog of war a little bit so that they'd be like, look, you know, when, you're, when Google was 10 people, here were the kinds of things they needed to do, right? When, when YouTube was 50 people, here's the kinds of things they needed to do. When Cisco was going from 100 million to a billion in revenue, this is the kind of things that they needed to do. Um, and so I think putting yourself in an environment with people who, uh, or surrounding yourself with people who have done the kinds of things you want to do is really important, and then also, um, not every business has to be a billion-dollar business. I mean, there's, uh, you know, it, it's it, bigger is not always is not always better. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things is like a lot of, you know, something like, I think there there was that whole unicorn club study that said like out of maybe you know thirty-nine and ten thousand companies become worth a billion dollars, um, and and a lot of things have to go right <laughs> that are outside your control. Um, between the market and competition and your product and not running out of money and you know the list goes on and on um, for everything to line up.
0: Okay, I see uh, Mark Schuster is gonna come on in a in a little bit. One of the things I'm gonna ask him, I was taking notes on what you said, is I've heard he does this for the entrepreneurs that he backs, that he brings his past experience as an entrepreneur to help them think through their challenges, and also as a guy who's just in the entrepreneurship community, I've seen that he collects ideas and then brings it back. I'll ask him for some of those later on. First, I want to thank you, Drew, for coming on here and uh, and not not just doing this, but also for having done a mixergy interview in the past and being so supportive of my work here. Thank you.
10: Awesome. And
0: well, congratulations. Thanks, one thousand.
10: Good stuff. All stay. right. Bye. See you there.
0: Thanks. Uh, I've got two more guests with me. Mark, are you good to to hang on for just a little bit? Sure. Okay, thanks. I want to introduce Rob Walling, who you might have seen on your screen for a bit here. Rob is a micro-entrepreneur whose recent company is Drip, which makes it easy for you to get your readers email addresses so you can grow your business. He's also an entrepreneur who's helped others build their own micro-preneur empires. Uh, Rob, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. Congratulations on the thousandth. Thank you. Hey Rob, what about this thing that you just saw Drew come on here and do an interview about how he built Dropbox. It feels like everyone you talk to has Dropbox on their phone, on their computer, in their heart. They all love it. Um, I've had the founder of Y Combinator come on here talk about how she helped tons of, not tons, hundreds of companies grow. And here you and I are, I'm doing this little interview. You are clearly in the micropreneur space. Do you ever feel like I've got to bust out of this and go way bigger? Not very often
11: because I think that there's a couple things with that. Um, If you want to build a Dropbox, you're going to have to build probably a thousand of them for one of them to succeed. And those odds, I'm pretty analytical, and those odds just didn't work for me. So, um, you know, I'm at the point where I'm still finding interesting things to do, still able to challenge myself and and learn. I mean, that's kind of what I need to be doing. And Mm -hmm. I'm able to do that even with smaller businesses that are in the, You know that are in the six or seven figure range, not the not the billion dollar businesses. I do. I have mad respect for anyone like Drew, um, you you know, or Mark who are playing in that space, uh, because it's obviously a real, a tough space to be in in terms of of success rate. But I like Mm -hmm. seeing I like seeing repeatable things. You know, once I got a couple skills that I could repeat and build new businesses, I haven't really gone out of that zone. I've expanded my comfort zone, but. I've never had the desire to, to, you know, I'm almost 40, I have two kids. I'm just thinking, man, really? I, I don't know that I have it. Yeah.
0: You know what? Yeah. i got to tell you. I'm, really ha- I'm so proud that we're doing a thousandth interview. That's why I'm celebrating here. But if I have my second thousandth interview that's still in like a YouTube box like this and it's just <laughs> me in the same office and we haven't had more impact and I walk down the streets here in San Francisco and people still don't recognize me enough. I'm going to be pissed. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to – I don't know. I'll change course, but I want more. I'm happy here, really, honestly. I'm very happy, but I want to go way bigger. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel like I'm really happy with Drip? But i got to get this thing bigger. i got to go and leave my mark on the world and have everyone uh, use my software, every single person on the planet.
11: Well, you said to, you said to have more impact, right? That's what yes. you want to do by the time you have two thousand. How much impact have you already had? How many thousands of people have probably sent you emails and said you've your interviews have, have changed the way I do business, have changed my life? You know what? Not
0: just emails, but check this out. Let's see if we can even bring it up on camera. I bet people here. send you shirts. What I bet people box send you shirts here sure. yeah. today. With Mixergy Cookies.
11: whole box <laughs> of cookies
0: here. That's awesome. From uh, Mike Flynn and Tony uh, Marama. And I'm really appreciative that they sent it over. And Anne-Marie's got a couple of other things that just came in today to celebrate. I'm really proud that people have been impacted, but I still want more. I don't sure. go to bed thinking, great. I, I feel like I was just watching a Johnny Carson documentary and thinking, look at the impact Johnny Carson telling jokes had. I better have at least twice – as no, not twice. I better have more impact than I have right now. I, I don't know exactly how to measure it. Maybe that's a problem. I'm going to ask uh, Mark later on if I need to know how to measure it. Mark's built uh, successful companies that are bigger than Mixergy. Don't you feel that? You don't feel that at all, do you?
11: You know, I so I do. I mean, I I think, but I think there's a way to say, you know, when you're 23 and and you have um, 100 hours a week, I see, and you can take the chance and you can say, I I'm going to start. I'm, I have nothing. I'm at zero, and I want to go to 100 by next year. Then you can okay. put in that that you know, if, let's say zero to 100. 100 is building a billion dollar business, all right, and zero okay. is where you're at when you're 23. You can say, I'm going to do that in a year, and I'm going to spend 90 hours a week. Or you can say I'm going to take a more gradual, a little more measured, and a little more predictable approach, and I'm going to go from zero to ten in the next year. Maybe ten is building a business that does a thousand bucks a month, see. and then I'm going to go to twenty the year after, and maybe that's doing five grand a month, and then I'm going to go to fifty, which is you know fifty grand. I don't know. I'm kind of just making up numbers here, but you get the idea. There's a more calculated, gotcha. but much much higher probability of success approach, and so that's what I've tackled. I I, I can't admit every, every most businesses that I've done, the the next one is is about between 5 and 10x bigger than the last one. That's been my goal. So yes, Drip, I do want to get it bigger, but Drip will never be a, a billion-dollar business. It's, not, it's just not designed to do that.
0: MicroConf, I went to the first one, and it was yeah, phenomenal. Thanks. You really, it felt to me like you, you curated the right kind of entrepreneurs, the ones who are big fans of your work, who all, who all had the same uh, uh, mindset that you just brought into the past questions that I've asked you here, and it felt like a really good event. I've been hearing that you sold this last one out lightning fast. How fast did you sell it out? It was ridiculous. It was like 20 minutes. Yeah, so what yeah, did you do fast. to to grow so fast, to make it so that in 20 minutes people buy? You know, we
11: Mike Tabor is my conference co-host and we built a conference that we wanted to attend mm-hmm. from day one. Every decision we make, we definitely take feedback from attendees, but we ask ourselves at every point. Do we want this to be at a conference that we attend? So we, you know, we've had people say, "Hey, we wanted to have exhibition, uh, like exhibit booths and stuff."
0: Yep.
11: And and multiple tracks, and all this stuff, and I just. I don't like that in conferences. I don't tend to attend conferences like that. So I think that's been a big part of it. The other thing is just being around. You know, there's a consistency. There's a there's a Steve Martin quote that says he talks about comedians. He says it's easy to be great. It's hard to be consistent. And what he means by that is it's easy to show up one night and just knock it out of the park as a comedian. But to knock it out of the park every night is very very hard. And it took him you know a decade to do. We've just shown up every year, right? This is our fourth microconf in Vegas. It's our fifth overall, because we did one in Europe this year. And each year it's gotten it's gotten better and it built its own buzz. And now there are people attending the, the kind of the when I knew we had figured it out is, is some people attended and said, Yeah, I don't know who Rob and Mike are. Oh wow. So I just heard about MicroConf and I was like nailed it. You know, like it's no longer about us, it's it's about the other attendees and the appeared oh. built.
0: I found that too here at Mixergy. That if I I've done now a thousand interviews, this is my thousandth, and there were times when I felt really shaky, and I would still go do the next one. There were times when I wasn't sure what to ask, and I'd still go do the next one. There were times when I asked the worst questions, well, and I'd spend some time thinking, "Why did that stink?" And then. Think about how I could avoid it next time and then go do the next and the next and the next. And then you naturally start to find yourself improving as you continue. And I've been watching you, Rob, for so long and naturally watching you grow and improve and improve. And I really appreciate that at the first micro comp, you not just had me out, you had me at this hotel room in Vegas with a grand piano, two floors. It was spectacular. And then it was so big that I felt guilty having it all to myself. I invited everyone from the conference to come over and to celebrate the, the end of the conference with me. Uh, Heat and Shaw bought everyone drinks, and it was one of, the best, uh, one of the best events I've ever been to, and I really appreciate you taking such good care of me. Thank Absolutely. you, thank you for doing this and so many other interviews on Mixergy.
11: Yeah, you know, I I really appreciate you coming out to, to MicroConf that first year and that party is something we do now every year. We didn't have anything scheduled and that shows you it's like the first year you don't know what you're doing and then it gets better gets better each year so I definitely appreciate it man and I've watched a ton of your interviews um, it's had a definite impact on my business so thank you so much for having me with uh, this amazing company of of Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin and Mark and, and Drew and everybody else. Really appreciate it.
0: You bet. Thank you for being on here. Our next guest is an old friend, Mark Suster, who you've heard me talk about a few times here. Hey, Mark.
3: Hello. Good to see you.
0: Mark is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and now a partner at Upfront Ventures. He went from being an entrepreneur to being one of those investors that helps support entrepreneurs, both the ones that he invests in and those in his network, and I've been so fortunate to have been in his network. I remember asking you, Mark, one time about an upcoming guest. Do you know any information about him? You took my call, and you helped me work through and prep for the interview, and I've always appreciated you for doing that. Thank you.
3: No, thank you. I'm here mostly because I want to say thank you, Andrew, for everything you do. Uh, I've done hundreds and hundreds of online video interviews, but I want to say probably the first I ever did after I became a VC was with you. Oh, wow. Uh, It was a great interview. I'd like to resurface it and actually see what I actually said. (laughs) (laughs) And if any of it was was relevant. And then I asked you one piece of advice. I said I want to know one entrepreneur I need to meet in LA. You've got your fingers on the pulse and you said there's only one person you need to meet. His name is John Herring and he runs a company that's now called Lookout. What a phenomenal recommendation. Uh, My only ask is next time can you send it to me a year earlier so I can
0: actually invest. Uh, he, is bu- he built something phenomenal. Well yeah. actually, one of the things that I've noticed since we first met is that you're helping to create those entrepreneurs. Like Sean Radd, I feel like you took him and so many other entrepreneurs in L.A. under your wing and you said, I'm going to help you out, I'm going to help you figure out this whole investment thing, I'm going to help you figure out this whole startup thing, and you did it because you wanted it to pay off at some point in the future.
3: Um, I think that's a fair statement.
0: Not I took just for home. you, I mean for, for them, yeah. for LA, and it wasn't the kind of thing that would pay off for years.
3: Well, it's interesting. So I took the long-term view, I still take the long-term view. Uh, I met Sean when he was still at USC. He had a company called Orgu, uh, but you knew that he had that magic something. He had design skills, he had big ideas, he had huge enthusiasm. I didn't love that business. We didn't fund it. We funded his next company. It was called Adley. We made a few mistakes at Adley. The single biggest mistake, and I advised against it. You won't believe this, but we brought in a new CEO, Mm -hmm. and I advised Sean not to give up the CEO seat, even though I love the guy we brought on, but it was the wrong move for the company. It was the wrong move for Sean. Sean then— What's that? Why did he do it? Um, I think he felt like the business was growing too fast. He was a little bit nervous that he didn't have the skills to step up. He was under a little bit of pressure from angel investors who had some issues with his management style. And We got this super talented person who he thought could take us to the next level. Um, He left Adley and uh, I took a reference call from IAC who said we've got this young kid we're looking for someone to come into our incubator. And I said, are you looking for someone with phenomenal design skills and great innovation? They said, yes. I said, Sean Rad's your guy. So I actually took the reference call uh, from Kara Nortman, who was looking to hire him. And then two years later, I mean, obviously, he went on to create Tinder. But two years later, then, I funded Kara as she spun out of IAC to create her new company.
0: Why do you think that, Adley, uh, it sounded like you were saying that there were that there are things you wish had done, gone differently. Ultimately, yeah. why do you think it ended up the way it did?
3: Well, Adley is still around, I should say, uh, and we've got a stable company, but I think we did a couple things wrong. So Very early on, I was very public, Sean was very public with our belief that in-stream advertising would be the way that ads were delivered as opposed to at the boundaries of your periphery where nobody okay. looks and everyone at Twitter said it would never happen everyone at Facebook said it would never happen but of course that's where all their money is coming from so we nailed that Um, I think we made a couple mistakes one is I always believed we should focus on long tail and we did build a long tail business but as we became incredibly well known every celebrity wanted to work for us so we started focusing on the celebrity business and I think that was harder to build number two is platform risk as an entrepreneur you just can't put all your eggs in one platform you really have to have three or four different platforms and I don't think we were quick enough to recognize Pinterest Reddit YouTube and other platforms we could have uh, monetized through
0: you know I remember watching you we we spoke with Neil Patel earlier about uh, twist up you and I were on a judging committee at twist up I was mostly listening because I didn't know how to evaluate these companies lightning fast you looked at their at the data that they submitted during uh, during the process on their form and you looked at their website and you were able to pick up on what was going on at the companies today and what was going on what was going to happen beyond in the future I was admired how you did that do you have enough of an awareness of your process to understand how you can do that, how you can pick up on things that aren't in the form that a company is doing today, and how you can figure out where they're going or where you think they're even going to go?
3: Well, I would say this. Um, number one is just when you see deal after deal after deal after deal, you start to be able to make sense of them. So part of being a VC is just seeing a lot of deals because then you can, you can recognize patterns and you have to be careful about patterns. Um, I, I will sound insincere when I say what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. but I actually don't think you know I'm that clever I don't think I have to be that clever I think that the problem investors get into is if you think you're smarter than the entrepreneur what I'm really looking for is an entrepreneur who has an idea that they're so incredibly passionate about they seem to have extra insight into where things are gonna happen and you're backing their intuition not your own now it has to be something you feel like intuitively you understand but you take the guys at lookout, you know they decided that they believed that mobile phones weren't secure. They were cheeky enough to go on the red carpet at the Oscars with a backpack with sniffing equipment and sniff all the information off the phones like you find people like that and you want to back them so on that on that call was a small, unheard of company somewhere in Europe, I think in Hungary called Prezi yep. no one ever heard of. I love those guys and instantly saw that they had potential there. It's a shame that I couldn't have been an investor.
0: Uh, One of the things you said in your last interview, you said you talked about the time that you took a shower with these construction workers who were one of them was wearing leopard skin underwear because at the time you were running your company you barely had enough money to afford a real shower. I always remember that. The second thing you said is you like to invest in entrepreneurs who have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And that brings up something that I'd like to apologize to you for. I don't even know if you remember and to ask you about the distinction. You when we first met, one of the one of the things that you asked me to do was come to coffee, which I did and you said Andrew I see that you're doing these events, I'd like you to organize an event for some of these great entrepreneurs. You're always a big booster of the entrepreneurs in LA and I said, Mark, you don't see me, I've got this thing, I need to be bigger than the guy who's organizing events. In fact, I think I had a chip on my shoulder that time and I didn't mean to, to come off as arrogant but for a long time afterwards I said, this is kind of an arrogance thing that it felt a little arrogant to me that I would even say this to a new friend before even getting a sense of who you are. I said, why are you seeing me at so small time that I'm going to organize an event instead of seeing this big thing in my head. So the different, the thing I want to ask you is what's the difference between having the right chip on a person's shoulder that's actually going to help them go somewhere and being borderline rude the way I, I think I was?
3: You know honestly Andrew if you're generally a good person you can get away with a few prickly events you give off such positivity you come across as completely sincere in your desire to educate and to communicate um, you were a bit prickly in that one situation I do remember that but, but of course I do but but we didn't miss a beat like you know I was willing to meet you again talk to you again get involved with you know going on your show because you know I saw it as a blip and I thought gosh I must have touched on a raw nerve I'm not sure what it was um, what I so I mean I'll do a small shameless uh, plug. I keep a blog. It's called Both Sides of the Table. Uh, I write a lot of these stories. There, one of them you can search for, which is uh, chip on your shoulder. And I've written a whole blog post. It's called What to Do with the Chip on Your Shoulder. A chip on your shoulder is good. I'm looking. It's why I like the idea of funding immigrants. I want to fund people who are not part of the establishment, who are not country club if you grew up with all the golfing buddies at all your prestigious country clubs you're part of the system you don't really want to upset the apple cart right like so I'm looking for the people who want to challenge conventional wisdom and often that's immigrants it's a, I fund everybody not just immigrants but often it is but if it's the person that's why a lot of super successful entrepreneurs have father issues and it's the I'm out to prove something often motivated by desire to stick their middle finger up at somebody and say you said I would never succeed and look at where I am and those are the people that do in my opinion do extraordinary things the wrong kind of chip I always tell this story I saw a guy who had raised money I met him at a conference and all he did was complain to me like I met VCs but they're so stupid they didn't understand this and my co-founder was so dumb he couldn't understand this and I don't understand why 23 year olds with social media ideas are getting funded and I'm not and you could just see that he was like a dog who had been kicked in the head so many times it was a bitterness so if the chip on the shoulder is to stick it to the man that's the kind of chip I want if the chip on the shoulder is uh, the system has wronged me and I hate the system that's maybe the
0: bad kind (laughs) I get that speaking of nice the other thing that I remember about you is and I want to understand the process, not come across as just complimenting, but one of the earlier times that I met you, you asked me if about my, my fiancé, and you said, are you comfortable using the word fiancé yet? And Since then, we've been married. But I, I was amazed that you would remember it, since we hadn't really come across each other much, I hadn't talked about it publicly. I wonder, do you have a process for remembering those kinds of details about people? Because it really goes a long way.
3: Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm a uh Uh, uh, I'm in a people-oriented business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think a lot of VCs are overly analytical and maybe lack that empathy, and probably in some senses are book smarter than I am, but I don't actually think it's a book smart business. So When I first got into business and looked at the elders that I respected, what it seemed that they had was a curiosity to understand what's behind the people. What are their drivers? What are their motivations? Because markets are going to change, funding environment's going to change, competition's going to change. And, and life circumstances change. Your co-founder gets married or has a kid or gets a drinking problem or has depression, or, you know, I've seen everything. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen everything. At my company, one of uh, my employees came in with a full bottle of uh, Scotch. And three quarters of it drunk just by him. Oh, wow. A big, heavy set guy, and uh, found out a uh, bad situation with his wife, and his wife was going to be leaving him. And we had an employee not only take him home, sober him up, but spend a week with him. Like, I was fearful for this guy's life. I guess the reason I'm telling you this story is being an entrepreneur, uh, I always say the job of a CEO is chief psychologist. You need to be able to hire talented people, but then lead and manage them. The job of a VC, I think, is understanding the psychology of the people you're about to work with. We were in a partner meeting just before this. I snuck out early, and someone presented a business where they said, I love the business. I'm just not sure this is the CEO to build it, and I said, conversation over, right? Like, those businesses don't work. Great business in theory, but not the right guy to lead it. Tell me if Um, I'm thinking.
0: So it's paying attention to people. I get that. Tell me if I'm thinking too too small time by going to the tactics, because I feel like I care about people. I, empath- I have empathy. I have concern. But the memory about the details of their lives makes so much more impact that if you remember my wife's name is Olivia, not just say, how's the wife or how's the family, but you say, hey, so how's Olivia? That little thing goes a long way. And so I've recognized that, and I've started to write it down when people tell me. What I find is that writing it down becomes a chore and I don't follow up. That remembering to go and look it up, often I forget, and if I do remember, I don't have the time to go and quickly sneak off and find out what Rob's wife's name is, for example. Rob Walling was on earlier. Is it just that you have a gift, Mark, or do you have some process for systematically remembering it?
3: I don't have a process, so I will tell you a couple things. Number one is I do in my contacts try to write people's spouses' names down and kids' names down if I if I can. If I'm there and if I remember I'll just write it down. Um, And I don't do it, like I don't go to see somebody and say let me look at their wife's name before I see them. I don't do that. But (laughs) where it happens honestly is I'll see them out with their wife and I'll go oh crap what's her name and just knowing that I can get my alternate brain out and remember her wife's name so I don't feel embarrassed. But no I would say to you first of all all of our brains are wired very differently Uh, And I think some people are just able to remember not. I'll tell you a trick that they teach you in sales. When you meet someone new, you're supposed to use their name in a sentence three times within a minute of meeting them. It's what politicians do, what salespeople do. So if I say Andrew, you know, that's an interesting name because my son's name is Andrew. And so I should always remember that name Andrew, but do you tend to go by Andrew or Andy. And just by saying that, I'm not likely to forget your name. And number two is uh, association. So if I can associate you with something, that makes me more likely to remember your name. But regarding names, names I'm not always great on, but I always remember circumstance, right? Like, I don't know why, in my brain, I associate you with your fiancé, but also with moving to Argentina, was it? Yep and you wanted life's experience and i asked you like is this just a year and you want to live out life or is this your future and you're going to go i'm just a curious person and i think it makes life uh, warmer to be a curious person
0: yeah um i want to get back into a couple of other things that i wrote as questions sure. for you throughout this interview one of them is that oh question that i that came to me earlier today if i want to grow mixergy if anyone wants to grow anything do you think, we, do I need to measure, do I need to say, I have to have another 10,000 viewers in the next year, or, or yeah, it, it does, it has to be measurable, yeah, it has to be even measurable. in a growing industry like the ones that you invest in.
3: You know, your measurement, so let me give an example, budgeting, yep. a lot of people don't want to do budgeting because you know your budgets are going to be wrong, so people will say, well, I have no idea, but what you want to do, first of all, is if you don't have a goal. If you don't have a metric in mind, you know there's an old saying, you manage what you measure? Yep. If you don't have a goal and you don't have a plan for how to get to that goal, you certainly aren't going to get there. So that's a problem, problem number one. Uh, And having a goal will force you to say, okay, what are the steps to that goal? So if I want to fly to New York, what are the waypoints between Los Angeles and New York to actually get there? Um, Number two is, with regards to setting goals that are short-term and long-term, the importance of short-term goals is if I set a budget and I miss my budget, what I want to do is after a period of time reflect what was I thinking when I set that budget, what assumptions did I make, how good was I at predicting or bad was I at predicting, because then when I make my next 12-month budget, I should say, okay, well, I was over-optimistic about these things Being good at forecasting your business is incredibly important to knowing how much capital to have, knowing how quickly to hire resources, knowing how much to spend on R&D and all the other things that matter.
0: So do you have a goal as a a venture capitalist for the size of exits that you'd like to have in the next 10 years?
3: Yes, absolutely. So my very clear goal is I want to have the largest uh, IPO in Los Angeles. Uh, I see I want to back a company in LA that IPOs and has the biggest IPO in LA my goal with that is not purely financial my goal is to see an ecosystem form around that company that will cement LA's position on a national and international scale as a feeder company for technology companies
0: and do you have a deadline for doing it or do you have a vision for when it'll happen
3: well I wanted it to be maker studios Uh, It could have been Maker Studios. Um, We just agreed to sell Maker Studios to Disney for almost a billion dollars. So financially I feel good about that outcome, but I mourn the loss of every company that gets sold. We sold Bursley to Apple, we sold Gravity to AOL. Um, I loved working with Amit Kapoor and Jim Benedetto. I loved working with uh, Evan Rifkin and seeing him three or four times a month. It's almost like going to camp and camp ends and you gotta leave all your friends that you were used to seeing all the time. Uh, I actually don't feel a huge sense of accomplishment at a sale. Well,
0: uh, you know what? I really, I, I want to be fair with your time. You've waited a little bit longer to get started because we had some tech issues and you've stayed on with me a little bit longer than we initially agreed to. I'll end this by just really thanking you, Mark, for all the support over the years, for overlooking some of the prickliness when I was really in my fighter mode. And frankly, I still feel like I'm in my fighter mode. And I I appreciate you doing that. Even after I left your ecosystem of Los Angeles, that's where I started doing Mixer G. That's where we became friends and in Argentina, in D.C., and now here in San Francisco. You've been a supporter, and it's helped me grow to 1,000, and I'm looking forward to beyond. Thank you, Mark. And can
3: I do a quick thank you for you, Andrew, is when you form connections with people, I always will feel connected to you, Andrew, and I don't connect to everybody, but I think we had a special bond. I love what you do. I would love to support you in any way, shape, or form. Call me if you ever have issues about growth or about anything else you're thinking about your business. Just call me privately. I would love to chat. Congratulations on your thousandth interview.
0: Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you, Mark Suster. Take care. Hey, there's someone who's been on a call with us, everyone. Olivia, do you want to come on here? And I'll explain why Olivia has been sitting there, why you might have seen that blue, that blue uh, silhouette for a while. And while she's trying to get up on camera here, let me thank a few people from the audience. Hey, Olivia. Hang on one sec. I want to thank one other person. Oh, Stefan, thank you for making those homemade cookies, the cookies that Anne Marie was trying to show me earlier when I was saying uh, that people have been incredibly supportive came from Stefan. Stefan, thank you so much for those cookies. I remember having a really tough day a few months ago, and Olivia uh, brought some cookies that you made. And I remember saying, all right, if I could get through 75 more emails today, then I'll have a cookie. And then if I could deal with this really tough issue, then after that, I'll have a cookie. And it's really helped me keep going. Thank you, Stefan. I want to do one more thank you to Dion De Silva who is saying that because of Mixergy he was able to connect with uh, Dane Maxwell who he eventually w- ended up working with and becoming the CEO, COO of his company. Dion is one of many Mixergy Premium members who've helped support Mixergy and I really appreciate it. I was actually hoping to thank every single person here who is a supporter of Mixergy. I've got a list here and I just haven't been able to do it personally so I'll thank you guys privately. But Dion, thank you. Olivia, thanks for being here while we were doing this.
12: Oh please, I get two hours of hearing uh, you ask interesting questions. People speak brilliantly on their topics and then my most favorite part is when they compliment you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Olivia is my wife and the reason that she's on here is we were having some tech issues bringing on some guests so I was worried that maybe a guest wouldn't be able to come in last minute. I said who can come in and really uh, be a supporter here in case everything goes wrong and get on camera with us and I said my wife Olivia would be willing to do it. I sent her a note and she popped right in there. Olivia, thank you for coming on here. Absolutely. It's appropriate actually that we... <laughs> uh, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good. Actually I should talk to Mark Schuster every day. Every time I talk to Mark I feel great. Yeah. Um, and I'm, it's fitting actually that you are the last guest here for the live recording because you were there when I started Mixergy and I started doing interviews and tried to figure it out. You were there when I couldn't get on camera. I told um, Mike from FreshBooks that I needed you on camera because I couldn't just talk into the camera and sell FreshBooks. I needed someone to interact with so that it didn't feel artificial. And so you said, all right, I'll do it. And I remember being in uh, in Argentina trying to figure it out, not just, uh, our, not just trying to figure out the interviews, but trying to figure out the Argentine culture and how to do it all remotely. And I would spend hours on it, especially in the early days out of my little office in Regis. And even though we went there to explore San Francisco, uh, me, Argentina, I would stay there till 10 o'clock some days and couldn't get home until way late. And you said, All right, whatever it takes, go do it. And I really appreciate you being there and being a supporter. For a dinner in
12: Argentina culture, so. Sorry? You're just in time for dinner in Argentina culture.
0: Yeah, <laughs> thankfully we were in Argentina where they don't eat till 10, 10 30, right? Yeah. Yeah, remember when it used to be so hard to find
7: guests?
12: I remember. I remember the technical difficulties. I remember going into your home office in Santa Monica. So actually, I wanted to have a surprise. I spent about an hour recording um, a little video clip for you last week, but not able to show it, which is fine. But one of the things that I talked about, and it was a brief clip, was that I, you know I have to admit I have to jog my memory for were some of the challenges because in my mind you've always been, you know, the naturally brilliant and curious and entreprenu- uh, enterprising Andrew who just makes it happen. And so I I do have to, to pause and, and reflect on what you tell me on how challenging it was because I've always had a, a, different, a different witness um, perspective of the work that you've done. But I'm incredibly proud of it
0: all right, um, I failed and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to figure it out by doing all these interviews and anyone who wants can watch as I, as I do these interviews and learn along with me. And I think that spirit stayed with it. The sense of I failed and so I'm going to be hungry to learn, the sense of we are all going to learn together and as opposed to me saying I'm bringing these experts on who are terrific and experts and perfect like me and we're all going to teach you. It's me saying I failed and I want to learn from you, the, the interviewee and the audience can learn along with me.
12: Well, you make that sound easy, like that's a natural premise, but how did you get yourself comfortable with that place? Be that in that place, a public
0: place. I hung on to the invitation site for too long, and I lied to myself about how well it was doing for too long, and I said, all right, I'm just going to let go of that. I'm not going to continue this charade. And. Once I did, it just felt so easy to be more open about everything. And that's what's kept it going. I had to. I felt like I just had to do this video, that video where I said I failed. The other thing was I started doing interviews before, and I felt like, how can I ask someone to be open if I'm not going to be open? How can I ask someone to reveal their failures and setbacks if I'm not going to do it? I just didn't feel right. And so I just had to go for it. Will you allow me, Olivia, w- with our time here before we end, to say thank you to a few people?
12: Yes, but I, would you would you allow us your reflections on 1,000 for a minute? Yeah. What does this is me. I'm I'm here, and I'm going to ask you. Um, and I hope that others will be as equally curious and benefit from your response. But just take a moment and talk to us about what 1,000 interviews mean to you. And what's your if you want? What's your what's your upcoming vision?
0: You know, the first, the the thing about a thousand interviews is that it doesn't feel like it's enough, but I'm also very proud of having done it. There were so many times where I just wanted to give up on it, where I said, it's too tough to find questions, where I would ask a question in a very convoluted way and think, all right, I'm not a natural questioner. I'm not a natural um, uh, presenter. I should just stop this and give room to someone else to do it, but I just kept going even when I had those doubts, even when I had those, um, those bad days. And that's what I'm always proud of that. I just stick with it with anything that I do. If I really feel that it's important to me, I'm going to to stick with it till I, till I make it. And sometimes that's good because frankly, that first company, I remember going into my brother was my co-founder. I remember going into his bedroom. We did it at, we started it out of our parents' house saying, I'm, So frustrated. We are working night and day and we're not even earning minimum wage. I calculated all the profits we made and divided it by the hours we worked and it was like two bucks an hour. And I said, I'm so frustrated. And I could have gone and gotten a job. I worked for really good people who thankfully valued my work and they would have taken me back um, after I graduated from college, but I stuck with it. And then I remember talking to Susan, one of my big, one of the pr- people who became a big sponsor and I called her every day. I said, Hey, this is Andrew Warner from Bradford and Reed. Could you please return my phone call? And I really laid in with the Bradford and Reed part because I felt she would definitely want to return a call to someone who was coming in from this big highfalutin company, Bradford and Reed. And she wouldn't call me back, even though I felt like Susan was buying ads from so many of my friends. Why wouldn't she even call me back and say no? But I still kept going. I still kept calling. And then she became this, uh, The first check from them was over three hundred thousand dollars. I still have a copy of it somewhere. And then afterwards, they did they sent us checks for over a million dollars in ads. And I just feel like I keep sticking with things, and that's one of the things I'm one of the characteristics I'm proudest of.
12: And we heard from from Seth that that's a combination of persistence, but also the creativity and uh, genuineness that you bring to things. I do.
0: I want to keep being genuine. I hate when I listen to interviewers who will just accept anything, who will be really um, just disingenuous. I can't listen to it. And all I do, you know, I listen to podcasts around the house. I listen to podcasts when we go long drives. I listen to podcasts as I run in the morning. I listen to people all the time and I've done it for years. And when someone's being disingenuous, I just feel like, I know you're a fraud. Don't you know you're asking a fraudulent question? Can't you just be more honest? Does it really stink to say, I don't know, I'm asking for myself? Does it really stink to say, I actually don't really understand what you're doing? Can you be open about that? You know? And so that bothers me to hear it in other people. And I don't want to do that for myself. I don't want to do it for myself. I also don't want to do it for Mike Flynn, who's a premium member. Mike Flynn, thank you for being a premium member and being a supporter. For Micah Bond, who's been a supporter, who's a supporter, who's a premium member. Jordan Gal. Man, I mean, these, I know these people aren't just listeners. You know, I think a lot of programs just have listeners. I have people who I feel like are really in, investing in my work here. Like Tim, uh, Tim DeJardine, I've talked to him. He's a big uh, supporter. He's also a Mixergy Premium member. I feel like if you were just hanging out and listening to my stuff um, for free somewhere online, yeah, I'd want to do a good show. But the guy's actually paying to be a Mixergy Premium member. I've got to gotta give him more. I have to work harder. I have to be more open, even if it means that I suffer for, for this work thank you tim all right thank you olivia thank and now the next goal is this here's the next goal you're asking about that earlier uh, next goal is to find a way to put it together i've been really proud to expose my audience to expose my premium members to the best ideas that i could find from people who i've admired over the years to people like um uh, jason freed to people like seth godin Now I think it's time for me to assemble more of these ideas into usable philosophies and frameworks that I could then leave on as my legacy. And I think I've started to do that with TrueMind. Tim is a part of the TrueMind program, and I'm really proud that he is. Uh, Howard, who's also a premium member, is Howard Hermes is a a premium member, but also a part of the TrueMind program. That is the first step in leaving this legacy. My hope is that when I die, people will take those ideas and use them and grow with them, just like... I was influenced by Dale Carnegie's ideas long after he died. Just like so many people came on here and talked about the authors who influenced them after they, uh, long after those authors, long after those people died. And now, Olivia, you got to watch as I suffer through that next part of the of the vision. Yeah. Cool.
12: Happily, I don't suffer alongside you. I'm just inspired.
0: Thank you. Thank you for being such a supporter. Thank you to all the guests who've come on here today to to be on the thousandth interview and to everyone who's listened from back in the old days when I started out with just me and a little laptop till today, thousandth interview means a lot to me that you guys are out there. Thank you. Thank you all.